Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. August is winding down, school is spinning back up for those still taking classes, uh, and we've got a lot of RPGs to talk about. The main release of this week that we're going to be talking about, it is actually releasing on the 25th or 6th for most of us, is the upcoming Soul Hackers 2. So that is going to be the main topic of this episode of the TetraCast. My name is Brian Vitale, and joining me today are three people who have all been able to get early access to Soul Hackers 2 that want to be able to talk about their impressions of the game so far in a spoiler-free fashion. They are Josh Torres. Hi, hello. Summer's almost over. Thank God. We have Adam Vitale. Hello. And joining us for the first time in a few months is Jess Reyes. Hello. Nice to see you guys again. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Uh, Jess was able to cover the game uh, and reviewed Soul Hackers 2 for Digital Trends, so she'll be joining in the discussion with our, our coverage over at RPG site as well. So we'll have a nice full discussion on the podcast. Also along for the ride, we've got James Galizio. Hey, folks. And Chow Min Wu. How's it going? I am also along for the ride. I'm not also, I have not played Soul Hackers 2, but that is what we're going to jump into immediately uh, to kind of detail what we have going. Adam recently put up his review for Soul Hackers 2 up on RPGSite.net, so it is up on the main site right now if you want to give it a read. Uh, Josh was also able to get early access for Soul Hackers 2 to help potentially look at uh, other features or bounce ideas off of with Adam for other coverage opportunities for the game. And then, like I said, Jess has reviewed Soul Hackers 2 for digital trends. So to hand it off, I'm going to just pick out of a hat, Adam, uh, to start the discussion on Soul Hackers 2. Uh, so because Soul Hackers 2 is kind of an interesting title, especially for those that are maybe newer to Atlas games, and kind of exactly what is this? It's a sequel, apparently. It's got a two in the title. Uh, what is Soul Hackers 2? Why is it interesting? Kind of just lay the groundwork first about what this game is uh, before we kind of go into our, our thoughts and feelings of it. So kicking it off with Adam. Yeah, so if... Most people listening to this podcast are probably aware of this, but you know, the Persona series is sort of a spin-off of the broader uh, Megami Tensei series, of which there's also Shin Megami Tensei, which its fifth entry just came out you know, half a year ago. But also under that larger Megaton umbrella, they've had numerous spin-offs that feature you know, the same sort of demons, similar themes, uh, similar like abilities, and uh, and all those things. Um, so these are games like the uh, Devil Survivor series on 3DS. Um, uh, back in the PlayStation 2, two days, which is this is kind of a key comparison to make, actually. There's like Digital Devil Saga. There's the Raido Kuzunoha game, which that's, that is uh, in, its, in itself a subset of the Devil Summoner games, of which the first uh soul hackers is also a part of but this this this, this, second, this game's lineages <laughs> but this I'm soul hackers game does not have the devil summoner like um like name attached to it which is kind of weird they just just soul hackers too it's its own little franchise now um so i know that was a little bit messy but long story short it's a spin-off in this mega 10 umbrella so it's related to persona it's related to shin megami tensei but it's not quite either of those really um and especially if you're coming from, you played Persona 5 or you played Shin Megami Tensei 5, and maybe you haven't played much else, maybe you are maybe a little bit, you know, curious about, well, what is this game like? Is it more like one or the other? Um, so the first Soul Hackers, um, that released on the Sega Saturn uh, back in like the late 90s, right? Yeah. 94. And that one, yeah, or early 90s, earlier than I thought. Um, and that that version was never localized. It never got an English translation. However, that game was sort of remade 
for the Nintendo 3DS in 2013, so almost a decade ago. Sorry, it was on 97, not 94. <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. Um, just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, the 3DS version was localized, so that was its first official English translation. And if you're not familiar with Soul Hackers, the original, it is a dungeon crawler, like, in essence. In fact, you know, the Shin Megami Tensei series and the Megami Tensei games before it were dungeon crawlers. And some of that, you know, lineage you can see in modern games still. But I think that's a key component to point out in that Soul Hackers 2 is not like, it's not like in the first person view set that a lot of those dungeon crawlers, especially back then, had. But it still places a lot of focus on, you know, dungeons and battling and things like that. It's not quite, you know, a JRPG social sim that, you know, like Persona is. There are some social elements we'll get into, you know, with the characters and whatnot, but there is a big dungeon crawling focus in Soul Hackers 2. So um, the premise of the game here is that our main character in Soul Hackers 2 is Ringo, and I believe the way they put it is she's sort of like a construct of technology and magic. That's literally the way they put it, like kind of like an AI construct of sorts um, who um, is from, what is it called, Ion? That's like this, it's like this AI that exists. It just does. And Ion basically predicts that the world is coming to an end and to, in order to stop this, creates two kind of humanoid like offspring in a sense, which are Fig and Ringo. Ringo being the main character. And Ringo goes into the world, which is sort of like a neo-future Tokyo, Japan area. And, and she is tasked with basically saving certain people who supposedly, based on this sort of you know, premise will can prevent the world from being destroyed. And within the first hour of the game or so, really, it doesn't really waste any time. You meet the other three characters that join your battle party, which is Arrow, uh, Melody. It looks like this, the name looks like My Lady, but it's pronounced Melody and Saizo. And that's basically your battle party. It's those four characters, and that that is it. That's your set party. You're not recruiting demons. You're not you don't like gain new party members as you go through the game. You get those four characters, and that is um that is your party. Uh however, I said you don't recruit demons, you do, but they're not like battling on the field with you. You sort of equip them as demons, sort of like the Persona series, and that that affects their abilities and their what they can do in battle and whatnot. Uh, is there anything I haven't said about like the game kind of on a surface level, Josh, that that I should? Um, no, the, the only the only like uh, clarification is like you, like with the premise itself. It's like you, like Ringo and Fig are sent that to sort of like prevent events that could lead to the end of the world. Not to say that like these the, these people are going to prevent the end of the world with her, but like because of these like the, these events that lead, the, they the Ion itself has uh, predicted that the, do, the domino effect. Like, if these people actually die it'll cause the end of the world. So it's your task to kind of prevent that. That's the, that's just the right. surface level thing. And you know, but that's, that's pretty much the setup of the game. It's a, it's a very, very simple setup. It's a very, your typical JRPG. Hey, we have predicted that the end of the world is going to happen with some MacGuffin. Uh, it is your task, the hero to make sure that the world doesn't end. That's the, the basic gist of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm I am interested in getting uh, Jess looped in here. So Jess, yeah. when you started Soul Hackers 2, I don't know if you've played, like when Adam was rattling off all those other games, uh, if you've played those or if you played last year's Shin Megami Tensei 5 or if you're completely new. Just like what was your initial like experience with these types of games going in or your initial thoughts when you started started up Soul Hackers 2? 
Well, I did expect some kind of, um, you know, derivative of Shin Megami Tensei because I haven't, I have played a little bit of Nocturne and a little bit of Shin Megami Tensei Five, um, and I have played a little bit of Persona and all that. I finished Double Survivor and like some other spinoffs. Oh, um, so Double Survivor is a great one. Some... Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, like I remember a lot of that stuff. Um, I never played the original Soul Hacker, so it was new for me in that sense. <laughs> Not many um, have. Yeah. So, in some respects, it was what I expected, but, um, yeah, it wasn't, like, I know that they're supposed to differ slightly from each other, but a lot of the time, Atlas has the same skeleton with a different skin, if you know what I mean, so. Yeah, uh, for sure, especially, like, when it comes to, like, because when Kaneko's, like, demon designs, those are very much, like, reused, like, in a lot of their games, like, just a... Core design designs, kind of, yeah, they're good. They're, I'm not saying they're <laughs> bad. I'm just saying that, like, you know, to an outsider's perspective, it's like, yeah, a lot of these games use like the same. Yeah, you, you've seen these demons in other games from Atlas Games. They're not like uh, very few of them are like, oh, I've never seen that before. We should also mention that they're really there's some very very minor small ties between the Soul Hackers games, but really you don't need to play the first one at all to like, yeah, you're not. There's no story tie. There's just like a nod and a wink. Yeah, there. there's, there's a pretty, there's a pretty self-contained story. You don't have to yeah. go out and like buy a 3ds and find like some copy of Soul Hackers. The uh, Soul like, Hackers before the shop closes next year or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. but, I mean, I mean, for people who have played the first Soul Hackers, there's definitely like, oh, okay, there is definitely like uh, certain niche concepts from the first one, and there's like some NPCs, like shop NPCs that come back, like you know, from just like a, like a Devil Summer lineage. Like oh okay I've seen like if you you've been if you've seen them before like they're probably back in your the NPC side. Mm-hmm. So so uh, I guess starting off I mentioned that this is I wouldn't say Soul Hackers Two is like a dungeon crawler like as like its only definition but it definitely has that DNA. Early on in the game after you're sort of introduced to you know the characters and the premise you're thrown into a a dungeon really called the Soul Matrix. And so if you've been watching um, the pre-release like trailers and detail, like they had a couple live streams and whatnot for the game, they did detail the soul matrix. It's effectively kind of like this, what it is in the game is sort of like this abstract space that Ringo can go to that embodies the other three characters. So there's a soul matrix for Saizo, one for Melody and one for Arrow. And you're thrown into here pretty early in the game. And uh, you have to do one floor of it um, kind of like an introduction to it as sort of required by the story. And for the most part, the rest of it is optional. Uh, I think you should still do it, but it is optional. Um, it's kind of like a side dungeon that uh, as you progress through the main game, it sort of expands um, with more floors. And as you go through this this dungeon, you gain two things. Like on the gameplay side, you unlock skills for the characters that they can use, um, some in combat, some out of combat. And also, it does give some backstory to them uh, in terms of, like, all these characters. I didn't mention this before, but they all died. And Ringo brings them back to life because she can. Yeah, and that's not a spoiler. That's just the premise of the game. Yeah, that's, that's the premise. Uh, so she brings them back to life. You get a little bit like, oh, here's some more context about how they died. Here's a little bit about, like, how they got to that point. So um, we'll talk about characters later, I imagine. But, you know, the Soul Matrix does give Pepper in some backstory about each of them and kind of, like, you know where they came from and whatnot. So I just yeah, want to make sure one thing's clear. Like you, you describe this like a side dungeon, but it's the first gameplay you get is in this place. 
you, okay, there's you a, like a tutorial, tutorial dungeon, dungeon before yeah. that, but it's pretty small. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, you're thrown into the Soul Matrix. It's when I say it's a dungeon, it's literally just like, especially the early floors are pretty like straightforward. You basically just kind of follow the sort of this path through the dungeon. You're fighting demons along the way. You get introduced to the combat system, which we'll describe in a moment too. Um, and then you know it's you map out this floor. And once you get to the end of it, you usually fight a boss. And like I said, you get some skills to the characters and you get some backstory on them. So it's not like the Soul Matrix, most for the most part, doesn't like move the, the the main plot line forward. It's sort of this side thing, but it does give you like backstory on the characters. It heavily incentivizes you so, to to do yeah. uh, go through it. Like even if you just like want, want to enhance like the abilities of your party members on a yeah. basic level. I mean like, both you'll do both this from, both from a character standpoint and from just a game standpoint you're missing out if you don't like you're gonna not you're missing backstory and you're missing abilities if you don't do it but it is it, technically optional it is also oh, yeah. like okay, go for it jess oh, i actually do have a funny story so i played yeah. most of the game without touching the soul matrix oh, interesting. Uh-huh. and um the game like you know every time i go to the safe house like every other time i go to the safe house they're like Hey, you want to go to the soul matrix and i'm like nah <laughs> um <laughs> because like i just didn't need to oh. um I only really went back towards the end because I was like, well, I'm kind of curious. And I wondered to myself, because like at that point, if you're going through floor one for all these matrices, then it's like everybody is under leveled. So I'm just kind of like cruising through like, okay, what kind of like support conversation that I miss, basically. Um, and I think honestly, if it, maybe it would be more of a cohesive experience if you did go to the soul matrix whenever it asked you to um but the, yeah i was able to make it through without it just because i was like i kind of want to just continue the main story um but yeah, yeah that's what happened yeah one um, thing about the soul matrix that's kind of this is a criticism it's supposed to embody each character and i kind of wish like the soul matrices like or matrices kind of aesthetically uh showed that but they all look the same, which is kind of disappointing. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of the big bummer for me. Is like it's it's a very like how do I even describe? It? It's a very minimalist, like you know, uh, very blue background, cubic type of thing. Like once you see like the, the very for the very first time, like the very first environment of it, that's pretty much the environment throughout the whole Soul Matrix thing. I think the 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 main thing that you know we're, we're kind of sidestepping around is like the soul matrix is like just a huge uh, chunk of the game like of of your uh, playtime. like i I, i'm curious jess since you uh skipped a lot of it for the most part like what was like your hour like roughly your hour count before doing more of the soul matrix and then like how was your hour count like after it after like just bundling it together honestly like i was about you know, like I'm around 30 hours towards the end of the game before I decide to go and like do all the soul matrix stuff that I forgot. Um, it was like, and after going through all of them, like about like, I don't know, five more hours. But that's because like, I didn't, like I was able to just like breeze through the first few floors because at that point I was over leveled. So yeah, like for, for Adam and I, since we, we the soul, uh, soul Hackers 2 does this weird thing where like, it divides up every like major story dungeon with like a new floor of the soul matrix depending on like how you uh divvy up your like your um your multiple choice th- things with your characters and we'll go into that in a little bit but the 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 main gist of it is throughout like the game your people ask ringo for her like input and depending on her input it'll show like like almost like social link number like 
things to your characters but it's not quite that it's called soul levels in the game and for every dialogue choice that you get it'll show you like hey if you choose this uh, option it'll be plus nine to arrow or if you choose this uh option it'll be plus nine soul level to ability or something so it's not like there's no guesswork in that of which you do and then once uh each of the three characters that you can interact with from your party um then once they reach a certain threshold it'll like unlock new floors in the soul matrix so if you're like dividing them up evenly and you're paying attention to that then you have like the pace of the game will be story dungeon then you can usually do a new floor for every one of your characters then after you do that you go to a story dungeon and then a new floor for the characters that you have and so that's it like if you're playing it like quote-unquote optimally or like what the game is really asking you to do and like make it a more quote-unquote natural progression obviously it's up to the players if they want to do that or not but like if for people who like want like a more balanced pace between their like party members and like how they receive skills throughout the game that's usually what they're probably going to opt for and that it's just so like i didn't i wasn't expecting it to be like such a divided experience between like okay story dungeon then this optional dungeon and then like usually you'll be spending a good chunk of your like your playtime like game like actual game time inside that optional dungeon then you go back and like the story dungeons don't usually take a long time then you go back to the soul matrix so a lot of the time you're interfacing like with this like this really bland dull environment of like sure like later flirts have like some spice to their dungeon layout and design and how the way you interact with it but i i I feel like there should have been a better like balance visually in that aspect too like you can you can feel like the development uh budget restraints on this title uh in that way especially since they bundled up all like the character backstories in that soul matrix it's never like it's never it doesn't never it never really surfaces like in a natural organic manner it does feel like very mechanical like do this person's dungeon to get this person's story it just i'd like it more uh we actually kind of talked about like uh, it's not quite related but we talked about in xenoblade 3 how they kind of put a lot of the character interactions and backstory just within the main narrative and it was something that we praised the game for or in soul hackers the way you're describing it having not played it myself it just seems like if you want to learn the background you got to do these side things that are like almost like gated off from the main game does if you play through the uh the main story Mm -hmm. does it like make assumptions that you know things that are put aside and like like the, the fact that it's so divorced like that tells me like if if someone like Jess can play through the majority of the game without touching the Soul Matrix, then that backstory of those characters must not come into play in the main story, or must not be like, the, factored like, they, in. They definitely, they definitely have like some characters have history with like some of like the opposing people that you uh, come across, and it's like, like for it, example, um, yeah. I think the one that probably inf- interfaces most with the main story is probably Saizo. Would you agree? Well, I yes. guess yeah, yeah. I mean, over I mean, Melody, probably it, not Arrow. It's yeah, Arrow's it's, it's story is a little Saizo. different. His backstory and his main story are a little different. But... Saizo and Melody are the main ones. Yeah, even yeah, though Arrow has kind of Arrow has kind of like an important story hook, but it's well, I guess it, maybe maybe I should take that back. And they're all relatively even. Um, but let's just use Saizo as an example. So Saizo basically uh, at the beginning of the game, you learn he is killed. Not necessarily by his girlfriend, but sort of tricked into being killed from his by like by his girlfriend, um, and this sort of brings up this. It's sort of this like Romeo and Juliet kind of thing in that they're kind of working for opposing sides in this sort of endless summoner war. That's kind of a backdrop to the game, and you meet her, his girlfriend Ash, throughout the game a few times, and uh, I won't like I try not to spoil anything, but 
you can go through the game and kind of get the story of like their what's going what happened with them in the past pretty clearly i think but if you go through size of soul matrix you get a little bit more like this is what it was like you know before the events of the game sort of thing so it's just kind yeah. of you know a bonus to doing it yeah for me i felt like i understood everything that happened pretty fairly just by going through the main narrative but when i went into the soul matrix afterwards it was um you know, it added flavor to what I already saw, basically. Was there like, any was like, particular oh, characters? Was there any any particular character Soul Matrix that you thought as you because you you ended up kind of like marathoning them all in a row? Is that correct? Yeah, basically, I did. Um, after basically, I was at the very end of the game, and then I was like, "Well, now I'm gonna go to the Soul Matrix." You know, like before the final dungeon. Um, but yeah, I think I ended up liking Sizos the best just because it gave some um some more um insight on what their relationship was like before you know like what his history was with ash like even with melody and iron mask i felt like there wasn't really as much backstory as like you know the build-up like i felt like with ash and saizo there's a little bit more build-up to like where they are now i I won't spoil but i think the most interesting part is like the very final like like final soul matrix scenes you get for each other character because they kind of go in a different direction with that but like it, it, it gives you more to think about it. Like, okay, that's an interesting thing that they present. But like, you know, it, uh, but it's it's like more. It's just flavor more than anything else on that. But it's interesting to think about. I I think it's like it's weird, right? Because uh, the the big story like story about this game, like when reviews came out, and we definitely felt the same way when Adam and I were playing through this. Like, it's a very reminiscent of like it's almost a spiritual successor of like PS2 era uh, Atlas JRPGs. Like, like you know, when we talk about like, oh, the the, the soul matrix feels like such a gamey thing, and I, I think about like, there's a lot of things like in older Atlas games that like are just like they're there like to be gamey things, not necessarily to like be like integrate like naturally organically into the main story. It's just like it's there because it's like it's a fun thing to like interact with from a gameplay perspective, whether it makes sense like in the plot or not. And I really think about like the think about where atlas is now versus like what atlas used to be like the times change eras has changed uh players expectations have changed of like what video game what they expect out of a video game especially what they expect out of a rpg uh you know uh, now versus back then and like how well should the systems of rpg always be make sense narratively um you know these days and a lot of people i i you know uh feel that 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 should be the case because when you think about an Atlas in a post Persona Five world and a post Shin Megami Tensei Five world, like you know, a lot of like the fan base that Atlas has built up over the years up until now, now though those like a lot of the newer fans or recent fans who like who like got into like Persona as their first Atlas game, like they had these expectations like you know, we want our RPGs like and their systems to like, we want everything to flow in a very organic natural manner that makes sense uh, a narratively story like like um the what was it called like the underground dungeon persona 5 for example like mm-hmm. maybe like in a, like in a, like an older atlas game like atlas ps2 days like if they if they were like restricted like on a hardware level technological level budget level like maybe that underground dungeon might have been like a more separate one-off thing that didn't have like a plot relevance or just like a fun thing to roam around but now like you know, they have the resources and technology to say, "Hey, this evolving dungeon as you uh, traverse down that has a big narrative like significance to it that we can add on to it now." 
you know, and it, it makes me think a lot about that because, like, you know, when you when you first heard about, we didn't hear about Soul Hackers too, but we kind of got a glimpse of it, like on last year's Sega's fiscal report when they were talking about this uh, util- utilization of yeah. IP assets slide, and then you had like you know examples of active IP between like the Yakuza series, um, Fantasy Star, Sonic, Megami Tensei Persona were separated as the different bullet points. And then he had examples of past IP groups, or like including dormant IPs, yeah, like Shinobi, Virtual Fighter, Space Channel Five, Panzer Dragoon, Knights, and so on. Like, that, it's like okay, we see where that that's going. And you see, you see a lot of like the fruit of that come into fruition, like with the House of the Dead remake, the Virtual Fighter Five, uh, uh, PS Five uh, or PS Four thing that came out. That was like a remake on the uh, like a Dragon Engine, and um, and then like Space Channel Five recently got a film uh, adaptation announced. Along with Comic Zone, and then just the one, the, the one, the thing that stuck out to Adam and I in this slide was just like Soul Hackers was a separate bullet point under this like past IP groups, dormant IPs. Yeah. It's like, to That's be really clear, weird. this was this slide was before Soul Hackers Two was announced. Yes, and it was just kind of odd at the time. We're like, wait, why are they listing Soul Hackers like this 3DS game from seven years ago or whatever? Yeah, it's so random. So, yeah, and then now we know why they where they listed it is because obviously at the time Soul Hackers Two was in development, just not announced yeah. yet. Um, so like like I'm kind of like writing a sort of like a like a separate piece feature piece that kind of like like I'm thinking about like how players' expectations have definitely changed over the years and over the era. The Atlas we know now is not the Atlas we know back then, especially you know naturally because staff, Atlas staff has been going in and out. You know Shoji Meguro is no longer with the company. There's a, there's a different staff behind Soul Hackers too, not from the original Soul Hackers. You have. Like the like the the co-directors on this is like the uh, the director of a uh, strange journey and the, the director of um, the Tokyo Mirage sessions, you know, yep. both on this. You know, they're not part of like the original Soul Hackers team, but it's just it's just interesting to think about of like if Digital Devil Saga or Kuzunaha Raido like you know came out in the modern era in the post you know Persona Five world, you know, I think we would like definitely get like similar reactions and similar criticisms about those games and those games are beloved it's like it's like the, the thing about soul hackers 2 is like it's not a bad game it's a pretty solid game i would say they have, there's definitely faults with it but it's on some level there's a some heart to it and i do like that it it harkens back to that experimentation phase that atlas did in that era of like we don't have a press turn system we don't have like standard demon negotiations like a lot of a lot of this is like it doesn't have uh, some of the staples that you would expect out of a Megami Tensei game. And that, I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's nice that it's kind of changed things up. So um, in terms of talking about, so there's a couple of things that we've sort of touched on, but let's touch on combat, I guess, since we yeah. haven't really yet. I actually think combat, besides like the music is great. Um, I think the music is stellar. I kind of wish maybe the Soul Matrix had more varied music rather than the slow piano stuff throughout the whole thing. But otherwise, like, I love the shop musics. Uh, there's several different battle themes that are cool. Some of the music in the city is great, and the different locations each have their own little music. Yeah, this is just from um, Akabe's, like, uh, studio, like, Monaka. And, yeah. and, the, uh, and, like, it obviously has, like, a, a good chunk of those people from Monaka, but Akabe himself was pretty involved with this OST from the credits, too. Yeah. Anyways, the combat in this game, like you were saying, it does kind of mix things up from what SMT and Persona have done in the past. So SMT's combat system is known as press turn. Persona's con- combat system is known as once more. They're don't, similar, don't get, slightly different. Yeah, don't get them mixed up or Adam will yell at you. Yeah. <laughs> experience. Uh, they're a little different. But the combat in uh, Soul Hackers 2, I think, is a high point. It's one of the stronger elements of the game. Um, and 
as as far as you know turn based combat systems go, but it is a little different. So they're unlike SMT and Persona. Both those like both press turn and once more have a have a system in place where if you hit a weakness, you gain you can gain turns, or if a weak if 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 you miss or you hit a resistance, you lose turns. Right? Um, there's no gaining or losing turns really here. Instead, what it generally is is that when you hit a weakness, you basically get a counter added to this this increment counted called a stack, and each round of a battle, the stack increases based on how many weaknesses you, you hit. And then at the end of the round, uh, Ringo will perform a Sabbath, which is essentially just like kind of like an all-out attack sort of deal where it does like a wave of damage on all the enemies all at once. And um, this happens every round. So you basically, every round you hit weaknesses and then Ringo will finish it off. With It'll a only happen if you hit a weakness. It doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. Really well. yeah. But you're usually <laughs> hitting a weakness at least once yeah. per round. Yeah. You should, anyway, if you're playing <laughs> smart. Um, and so I, it's not really quite exactly like any other Mega 10 game in the past. I think it's most similar to Demon Co-op in like Strange Journey, where the, how that worked was you hit a weakness and then like other enemy or other demons of the same alignment would follow up. There's, you know, there, it's, it's similar. There's no like alignment or anything there, here. There, but there's like a certain properties to it that like make you think more tactically. Like, like the, the Sabbath attack is like the damage is dispersed throughout like how many enemies there are. So that yeah. if, if like a, a lone enemy is taking the brunt of that, they will take more damage because like there's less demons or uh, the opponents on the yeah. field. So There's also uh, certain demons in your party can uh, introduce like other parameters to the attack. Like for example, Jack Frost has an ability. I forget what it's called exactly, but when you perform a Sabbath, it can heal your party too. And yeah. there's other abilities like it can weaken the enemy as you do it, or it can gain give you MP back, things like that. So there, there's depending on the demons you're using, it can be altered a little bit. But overall, just kind of like more surface level, I would say it's a little bit simpler than other Mega Ten battle systems, but there is still a fair amount of strategy that you can that you have to put into this to like be successful, especially if you're playing on harder difficulties. Um, as just one example, you can pretty much change your demons that are equipped on the fly. There is a restriction; you can't do it like every time. But um, sometimes during battles, it might be best to swap what demons you have equipped around to give yourself like a different ability or a different resistance. Um, it's like the older Persona games in that sense, where any any character can equip any demon. Um, obviously, just like any good turn-based Mega Ten game should, you have to pay attention to your resistances, your weaknesses, what the enemy's weak to, buffs, debuffs, things like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's are, it's overall pretty solid. Yeah, there's like there's um, like go for it, Jess. Oh, I was going to say one of the things I appreciated coming back is that um. Well, I actually remember this from Devil Survivor, where the demons that you trained would fuse into stronger demons than ones that you could just summon from the compendium. So that was one thing that I appreciated coming back to. Yeah, I, I think that this this game is interesting because like I summon from the compendium a lot of times into fusions, and like they they updated like the the interface for the for the demon compendium in this to like you can like tweak like filters like do you want to summon for like the what's registered or do you want just the base? So like if you're being conscious about your money, you, you, there's a easy way to like access all that. Like, hey, I want to make this new demon, but just like use the one that I have, like the base one. I don't want to go all out and spend a lot of money for the one that I have registered. And I appreciate a lot of like the UI tweaks and add elements to that and giving that. Oh yeah, that uh, was pretty useful. Yeah, giving us those flexible options. And it um, has all the other. Uh, 
it has all the other components that have become commonplace in these fusion systems that did not exist back in the PS2 days in terms of like search fusion. Uh, Adam putting and, up uh, his uh, back in the days hat. No, I'm just, I'm just saying like back in the day, <laughs> you you couldn't like inherit, you couldn't choose which skills you inherited. The, the it was kind of random. The, the, you the had to like is. manually pick which demons you were fusing. Now, this is common now, but you can just do like a search fusion where it just tells you here are all the demons that you can fuse and you can transfer abilities and whatnot. So that's pretty common now, but it wasn't back in the PS2 days when we were kind of saying this game big, is sort of reminiscent of. The big thing that separates this also for the first soul hackers is a demon's level and the, yeah. in the first and the first soul hackers demons didn't level. You yeah, demons did not level. The so, first soul hackers yeah. is kind of funny in that like Numissa, who is mm-hmm. a main character, and the, and your like player character are like the brunt of your force, and then all the demons you summon. To be honest, like in the way I played it anyway, they're just kind of like almost just like meat shield, just like yeah. decoys. Like, hey, attack them! Don't attack Numissa. <laughs> Yeah, but this yeah. game's pretty different. Demons do level up. Uh, you don't have, like, you don't have moods. You have to like manage moods. Yeah, there's no magnetite. Well, there's sort of magnetite, but it's not anywhere close to how it is in the original. Yeah. Uh, so, so for people, so for like the seven people who remember how the first Soul Hackers were, there you go. <laughs> you know, um, but it's uh, I think it's I think there's certain aspects of battle that like it, it's funny because I know a lot of people are complaining like you don't see demons don't participate in battle you can't see demons it's like one in the first soul hackers you can even see your demons in battle in the first place they participated with you but you couldn't see them they're on the menu they're, yeah they're, they're on a first person it's a first person dungeon crawler and second like it does this cool effect in battle like when you hit a weakness you'll see like the silhouette of a, of the demon like uh, uh appearing uh, uh behind your enemy so they're like kind of like stalking them until like the sabbath appears so it really reminded me of like the it's a complete black silhouette only with like their eyes glowing in red and it reminded of like early kazuma kaneko like concept artwork especially nocturne of like how like demons are supposed to be menacing and terrifying like if you really think about it because you know they have like all these like fucked up mythologies behind a lot of them so like it just reminded me of like the like demons are supposed to be like somewhat scary and it, it, it exudes that vibe especially like as you're as you're driving up that stack counter you see like the battlefield like get like warped increasingly more warped as like you uh increase that stack so like you'll see like green and red like whirl like a vortex whirlpool effect uh surrounding like the the battlefield arena and like i think that was really really a really nice visual touch to it sorry about that anyways yeah. um i this is just kind of like the smt nerd in me but like in a 3d game you don't really see like the the classic cosma Kaneko uh, demon art but when it's kind of really cool to see those silhouettes pop up and they're in their like classic poses uh, that that the official art is in, I, it's just kind of like a small thing. But it's really cool to see like you know Cerberus or whatever demons. Just like when they pop up as a as a one of those silhouettes in the stack, like it's in the, it's like the silhouette of the classic Cosma Kaneka art. So it's yeah. just kind of it's just really cool to see. Um, now the uh, the characters themselves, I think. I wasn't super high on the characters, but I will say this. I think the characters themselves are more interesting than the actual, like, main plot that takes place. Um, I sort of, I'm making sort of a t- distinction here between, like, the character writing and then, like, the actual, like, story. Um, how, do you, how do you feel, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I think so, too, that they're very interesting. Who is your favorite character in it? Like, just whether it's a side character or, or main, main character? For me, um, I was some, mostly interested in Melody and Saizo just because 
you know, Arrow kind of gives me that vibe where he's just like a shonen hero, but grown up. <laughs> so it's kind of a little bit more typical to the stories I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like Melody as a character, but I feel like um, as for actually watching um, the past unfold, I prefer Saizo, actually. Um, one of the things I thought about was uh, because Ringo is the protagonist. When we're looking at these three characters in the actual plot, somehow it feels like kind of being a bystander. But um, because, you know, I do think that all three of these characters are very interesting in their own ways, actually. Well, that's a good, yeah. that's interesting that you bring that up because I have not played uh, Stalkers 2, but I remember having some discussions with Adam and Josh that Ringo is kind of unique because in most other Atlas games, the protagonist is literally silent or just about doesn't have a voice actor or doesn't or is only implied to speak where here Ringo speaks and talks and converses anyway. So it's interesting that you say that she still feels like a bystander. It could be like in maybe potentially intentional or maybe that's just the style of story that Atlas is used to telling where she just serves as the point of view character for the for the player. Uh, yeah. even I mean, though she has like, Actually, I feel like in some way it is purposeful because I feel like a big theme about this game is what it means to be human because she's an AI. So she exactly Fig are supposed to be learning about what it's like. Um, So it makes sense. I just feel like still, maybe it's because the Soul Matrix stuff wasn't incorporated into the main plot like it is with um, other games where it kind of weaves in a little bit more um, fluidly. But yeah, that's just something I did think of as interesting. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 there is like spots of like Ringo where it's like you. It's very amusing. Like, uh, like the early on, like when you guys are about to like get something to eat, and you guys always eat pizza at the at the hideout. Um, but it's just like the first time she reveals it, it's uh, it's like she just like dramatically reveals like a shitload of pizza at the hangout, like way more than like four or five people. But she's like, I just like, why did you do this? Like, I just thought it'd be cool to dramatically reveal. All right, how many? Uh, if you if you have four friends over, there's five of you. How many pizzas do you order? It's like two, right? Maybe three. Uh, I think two probably is three. Probably three. But they have like thirteen pizzas. <laughs> thirteen pizzas. With mayo. Yeah, with mayo. You see ketchup and mustard on the uh, table too. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, they they live wildly out there. But yeah, so like throughout the game, you get these hangout events, which they're kind of like mini social things where it's they kind of happen at predetermined points. So you don't need to like decide who you're hanging out with or whatever. But you get these little hangout events where Ringo converses with the other characters. And unlike, you know, a Persona game where there's maybe like a romance element to it, there's really no romance element here. Like we said, Saizo has a girlfriend. Melody is sort of uh, has a boyfriend. Let's just put it that way. And um so it's not like ringo the boyfriend is, like... is iron mask i don't know if that's true i'm just guessing <laughs> oh yeah you know what i remember i made a joke in my review that was like okay everyone's coming back to life and has a problem with their ex and i was like yeah pretty much um, kaburagi totally arrows ex <laughs> yeah um i was actually talking with uh cullen earlier that like kaburagi might be sort of gay coded i mean i might be looking into it but it's, it's he might have also have a relationship um who knows but anyways, like so, when, when Ringo is talking with these characters, like like Jess said, it's not like a persona, like dating sort of element to it. It's more literally just Ringo, just like I don't know what humans are. Let me talk to some humans, and they're all a <laughs> little different. They have their own personalities, and she's kind of just learning about like, oh, I guess this is how humans work. Um, and you know, because she is an AI robot sort of character, she's kind of amusing in that she just doesn't know like what normal norms are. Um, 
So that's definitely a big concept of the game. And also, we sort of mentioned this, uh, Jess mentioned this a while back, but like these characters are adults. You know, we're not, these aren't teenagers like in a Persona game or even most Shin Megami Tensei games. Um, so that does give them a little bit of a different flavor in terms of like the things that they care about, talk about, like what actually embodies them as a character. So that's cool. It's a bit different um, than coming from those other games. Yeah, it just it just makes me wish that like there are definitely darker themes like around the edges of this game, and I wish they had like the that were given the proper time and resources to like really explore that because I think I think the actual world building aspect of like the what it could have been is like way more interesting in my head than what is actually conveyed. Like when you think about like the Monsai realm and like all the like, the the assets of like uh, like the demon advertisements. Over there, like the Monsai realm is supposed to be like this sort of like neutral ground between like the opposing devil devil summoner groups of Yanagarasu and the Phantom Society, and like that's there's supposed to be like a neutral ground because there's like sort of like these uh, third party shops that they go to to enhance their tools and so forth. So you have like this like all around it, like uh, these shops is like kind of like billboards, neon signs of like different demons and like and like how they advertise it like in a ultra capitalist society and like how <laughs> and all sorts of stuff and it's like and like and there's like certain like narrative beats that like and uh character moments that like tint like you know darker themes but it's like but the 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 story itself is never given that scope or like given that attention to like really dig deeper into like those sorts of things it's kind of like mentioned and then moved on and it's like it's like one of those things like it's so in in some aspects it's like it's a lot of like so much potential lost and like it makes me really wonder that like if this game does well enough financially if they'll like if they're considering making a follow-up not necessarily but having the same main characters it could be a different group but have like these same characters be involved in some way shape or form in a, in a later fashion um, yeah we haven't really talked about the story obviously we don't want to spoil it but yeah. i think i read jess's review and i know josh's uh thoughts as well and just, i do think that the story itself is just kind of weak mm -hmm. it's it happens pretty quickly. Like nothing really gets like a chance to like. It, it's it's it feels kind of threadbare. It feels like everything just kind of happens because it has to happen. It doesn't really hit very hard. It's it's also kind of like trite. I feel like oh, I've kind of seen this already before in, in other media. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed in the story, um, and I know Jess's review. I felt well, was similar in that regard. Um, so that's disappointing. But like you said, I feel like there are some broader world concepts. It's kind of like, I wish they kind of went into this a little bit more um, and whatnot. Oh, yeah. I think that's something to point out, actually, that, you know, it's a really cool premise, honestly. The world is ending. It's like mm -hmm. cyberpunk, uh, you know, cyberpunk with demons and all your characters are adults with complex issues. Yet it doesn't really come together in the end, you know? <laughs> yeah. And we briefly mentioned this also as well. Um the game does kind of feel cheap in ways, and this is the sort of thing where maybe some people this doesn't bother them at all, but it's just like, I felt like, especially coming off of SMT5, which I know is on Switch and maybe doesn't perform as well, but like the animations were kind of more simple here. I thought some of the facial animations were kind of awkward, mm -hmm. like they're learning how to animate the faces in this anime art style. It does uh, there's that, a lot uh, of asset reuse. Like you it, go through a you go through a subway dungeon that looks just like a train dungeon. You go through the east shipping district, and then you go through the west shipping district, which looks the same. Yeah. Uh, so it's just there. There are you can kind of see the seams here and there about like the budget constraints of the game, and the art know, style I, I'm glad that it exists. But there is yeah, the art style is great. I think yeah. uh, I think the artist's name is Shiro Miwa. Mm -hmm. I uh, he or she I actually don't know the gender. 
they did um the seventh dragon games and a few other games um and i think the art style in terms of like the character art i think it's a perfect fit honestly for demon cyberpunk so yeah kind of like a more comic look uh comic associated mm-hmm. look to the demon models i really liked like you know when they uh, like zoomed into like the demon models when like you they interact with you or like your or defuse them for the first time it's like there's a lot of detail to them that i uh that i was i really wasn't expecting it's was like oh that's really really neat that they went in this direction for it and i but I, when you when you say like they cheapen down like an some animation stuff i always think about like it's so hard to describe, but it's like you know it when you see it. Like that typical, like when a when a character like turns around to face someone, like their whole like their character model moves like like almost like they're like walking in the same place to like to like move their bodies. It's like really weird. It's like okay, that's such a video game thing. But it's like when you when you see it, you know it. Like okay, yeah, they were definitely um, you know. There's a I imagine a lot of development streets, and I, I mentioned this to Adam. Um, but I'll, I'll just say it publicly here, like, when I beat the game, and you think about, like, all, like, when we're talking about, like, the potential of this game and how much, like, you kind of squandered it, like, I just want to see, like, the original rough draft of this game and, like, how much had to be cut from that original concept to, like, ship this game in a timely fashion to fit within, like, you know, budget reasons and so forth. Because it, it, it almost feels like a game that, like, it had grand ambitions and like like just parts of it had to be cut 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 just to like we need to like we need to get this out and like we we've gone over like our the scope of like what we uh, what you know the, like is, there's not enough money to like fund what we actually want to do this is also this is sort of a separate topic altogether but related i'm also curious about like how they decided what gets to be dlc uh, have yeah. it, have either of you have had access to the DLC? I think I did because I had the PS or the play, the PC version, but I don't think the PlayStation versions have access to it yet. I, I did uh, yeah, I don't yet. Yeah, I so so like, there's a story DLC. It's ten dollars. It's available at launch. So on one hand, kind of just by definition, that was content that's already made and already done, but sold separately. Um, and I played this DLC. It's not just a story DLC, which is actually not what I expected. Um, to be honest, I don't even know if I'm really supposed to be talking about this, but I will because they weren't very clear in their embargo. But um, uh, the DLC story, it's basically a series of quests that take place over the course of the game with a new character named Nana um, that you've seen if you've seen the trailer for the DLC. And, you know, it's fine. Um you know, just basically kind of like these story-focused quests, kind of this little side story that happens. Is, well, sorry to interrupt to you, that, but is it the... I went to the Steam page. Uh, bonus story arc, The Lost Numbers? Yes. Is that it? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yes. So that's, you know, on already it's just like a story DLC available on day one. You have to pay 10 more dollars for it. Like that alone Which, is kind of not... I, I know. It's, kind of yeah, weird. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a well-worn criticism, but that's just like that... that I, I feel like that Mona Lisa image is like 20 years old now where it has like the thing cut off and just like with a price tag yeah, on so, it. Like, but I'm just thinking like when this game was developed, they literally had to make a decision. All right, let's do this. Let's While we're developing the game, let's make this other content, but we ha- where it's going to be separate and we're going to sell it separate. It, it, yeah, it, 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 it feels like, you know, it's, it's, it's a different deal from like we're going to get to this later but you know james has been playing like xenoblade 2 the Tor- torn of the golden country and like that's definitely like something that you knew was the developed way like you know after the game came out sure it was like maybe a development like as the game was coming maybe, maybe they had it storyboarded but yeah. they yeah you know, but came definitely out like a year like, you know, after the game 
Yeah, the, and and that's a chunky like you know you can see why like that was sold separately that that wasn't part of the main game like. And also is, the thing that I wasn't really expecting though is this story DLC. It comes with a new a new dungeon with the story DLC. It's not a great dungeon like most of the dungeons in the game. Sadly, uh, that was my biggest criticism. By the way, is I don't really like the dungeons. Anyways, um, which is not very good for a dungeon crawler. But anyways, yeah. there's a new dungeon, and once you're done with the story DLC, the Dungeon also has it has like high level enemies. It sort of acts sort of like a post game dungeon. The enemies are like in their level 80s and 90s. And then there's like a super boss at the end, unrelated to the story DLC, but it's included in that price. Um, on well, one story hand, it's DLC just like, like oh, gives you access to this super dungeon. Yes. Yeah. On okay. one hand, it's like, oh, you're getting more bang for your buck. Not only are you getting a story DLC for $10, you're also getting this bonus post game dungeon. But I remember actually when I was playing through this game, this is a very, very minor mechanical spoiler. The, the the final dungeon in the game, the main game, your demons are around like level 70, right? And I was kind of thinking like, well, how do I get to the demons that are like level 90? Because I can't fuse them yet. I'm not high enough level. Like, how do I, how, there's like, where do I get the extra levels to go that high to get those demons? Where is it, right? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I was just kind of curious. Yeah. Like, and it, those you don't have, the game. And, and you don't have this <laughs> DLC, you're, you're kind of like stonewalled. You can get them through what's called risky enemies, which, you know, whatever. I won't get into it. But it's just kind of like, it felt awkward. Just like, the highest level demons you fight normally are level 70. There's demons that you can get that are level 90, but how do you get them? Like, well, I guess the answer is you have to get the bonus DLC and get that dungeon to do it, because those demons are level 90. And so that was, I felt that's just a little weird. um, That this kind of dungeon... And it has new demons too. Oh, and also I didn't mention this. Mm-hmm. You know the comp smith, right? Where that's where you upgrade your your weapons, they gain new abilities for your characters and whatnot, and so on and so forth. Yeah. You get new comp smith upgrades too in the DLC. What the fuck? Um yeah, and it's just like so again, it's like you're getting more with the DLC, but it's also like, why isn't this not in the main game? I don't know. Um, so, so I, I have two follow-up questions. One specific to the DLC, and that is like, do you think it was worth it in terms of like Playtime story content was like, yeah, I'm glad I played that. Or well, was it just to be like... to be fair, I got it free, just like we all did for the review all copy. Right. So I didn't have to spend sixty dollars okay. plus ten okay, more so dollars. I'll, I'll, I'll word it more <laughs> generically then. Like, was there was the additional story compelling? Was it like I thought, did it? I thought did the it story add... was okay. okay. Nana's like side story. I thought it was okay. Not like I don't think it's like yes, you have to get this for this. I thought it was fine. Um, did what you get a significant really amount of playtime out of it? What I actually really enjoyed is I actually enjoyed the super boss that comes with the DLC. Uh, it's not like a cameo or anything, but I probably shouldn't spoil it anyway. No, you're not, you're okay, not fighting Demi Fiend again. I'll just say that. There is a super um, boss type. Yeah, and I actually really enjoyed that just from just like a super boss challenge sort of perspective, not like a story perspective. But it's, again, just kind of included in the DLC. Um, it, it and is also, kind of I didn't mention that like some key demons are left out of the game and you can spend $13 to get eight of them added, which Atlas has never done before. Atlas has done a lot of DLC before, but I don't think they've ever done like a demon pack like this. Have they? They've done like, I don't know if they've done, they definitely released demon DLC before, like when it comes to to SMT4 Apocalypse. Oh, I don't um, remember. SMT5. I don't know if they did packs, but like, you know, Cleopatra, like SMT5, you have to go, you know, spend... You know, uh, money to get her, and then there's like, there's definitely been demon DLC before, but it just feels egregious at this point. It, do- it doesn't feel good for optics, right? Like, hey, last year's SMT5, Mara was in there, you can go fuse Mara, but now a year later, a new Me- Mega 10 spin off comes out, but now you have to pay to fuse Mara, 
you have to pay real money for the ability to fuse Mara in the game. You know, the thing is, I think with Nocturne on Steam, I think like the 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 uh, it was kind of like one extra DLC pack the that added the like it added Demi Fiend and like that all those a couple of demons with that. But yeah, SMT five has this a like, thirteen dollar demon pack that gives you eight demons that you just can't get otherwise. I mean, that's it. Soul Hackers it's, too for for this one. Oh, sorry, I missed. Yeah. I said the wrong name. Soul Hackers too. Yeah. yeah, and it's just kind of. Like, it's weird. At least with Nocturne, like you can, you can at least you can make a case for it. like you have to like pay to like uh, you know uh, I think get Dante in it because you know Capcom licensing fees, original licensing fees for to use Dante have long expired. Okay, that makes sense. But for this one, it's just like it. It just feels bad because this all came like at day one. Uh, if you want all of Soul, what Soul Hackers two to offer, you need to spend like what. Eighty dollars, eighty-five dollars. Uh, it's like well, eighty or ninety. Yeah. On Steam, they've got these four DLCs put together into a forty-dollar bundle. I don't know how much it actually saves you, but it's the bonus demon pack, the costume and BGM background music pack, which we haven't even talked about, the bonus story arc, and then like a booster item pack. And it's just kind of yeah, like they, one of those they always have the cheat DLC. Oh, so I guess yeah. So the base game is sixty bucks, and that's forty bucks. So not including like digital deluxe or digital premium edition, which I forget. Yeah, this is like what sort of game where it's like you need to pull out the chart. The yep, you know yep. how it is. Like the I've actually the seen vertical. people joke about it. Like time to get out the chart to describe what or, you get yeah, and what. Yeah, on the on the you know on the x axis you need like the different versions, and on the y axis you need like what you get in each. And it's just like by the time you're like d- listing out in a podcast like this what you get with what, it's just like my eyes just glaze over. I'm just like, it, it's now I don't, I don't really mind Soul Hackers to uh, the DLC chart is that. The only way to get the Persona 5 uh, costumes is to pre-order the digital version. Not yep. buy it at launch, not pre-order the physical. Specifically, it's a pre-order bonus only for the digital release. And also, there's um, a couple of small things that are exclusive to the digital special edition or whatever they call it. You can't get it with DLC or any other way. It's like the Iho Demon, which is like, um, it's like Ringo as a Jack Frost. And also like a maid outfit. So like small things, really. And but I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure yeah. those things are completely like inconsequential in the long run. But like, right, if I, I'm, on, I'm on the Steam page right now, and just the amount of different price tags I'm seeing, and like digital deluxe edition, digital premium, premium edition, it does not detail clearly what these are. I'm sure I can di- dive in and find it, but it's just not a good look. It just turns me away, which I th- is frustrating. Now the cheat DLC and the uh, like, the costume DLC, I think is whatever. You know, those are pretty common in games. Like costumes are totally cosmetic. You pay ten dollars ten dollars to get like swimsuits and Sengoku era, and I think there's a Raido Kuzunoha set, which is actually pretty cool. But it's, it's things own. like. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say like, I thought the issue that people had with it in general was that part of the criticism about the game is the content that it doesn't feel that there's not as much variation and perhaps should be longer, etc. Which or like there's not as much. You know, like this would add, this would sound, this DLC sounds like it would alleviate some of those problems, which is why people think it's an issue. That's what I thought, at least. I don't know if it would alleviate any current issue, like directly. It might be like a tiny band aid, but I think that the two main criticisms I have, like to be honest, the costume DLC is whatever, the cheat DLC is whatever. That's common. You see that all across the board. It's yeah. the demon pack that just kind of feels like that's an extra step that they kind of really haven't had before. It's like it's, it's more expensive than the story DLC. You're spending thirteen dollars for eight demons. That's that's not nothing. Uh, so and then the also the DLC? fact that there's a the, the fact that the story DLC is available 
on day one for 10 extra dollars it's just kind of like hmm and and, and, the, and also the fact that it just seems like you don't have nearly as much of a post game without paying for that right which we kind of yeah, exactly. saw in oh what was it uh was it Shin Megami Tensei 5 where you paid to get the cameo super fight there yeah. which I never even bothered with I did the I did like the in-game super fight and I just could not be like uh, I don't want to pay whatever at eight ten dollars for the privilege of being able to fight a different super boss I don't know maybe at maybe I just one didn't wasn't this even a thing on 3DS? Like, I remember people saying that basically one of the major bosses for the neutral route in SMT4 Apocalypse is basically DLC. You do like there's like there's like some major bosses like uh, that was yeah. uh, DLC. Not not like not like part of the story, but like like it's like there's like the, a boss that you only fight that's like pretty like integral to SMT lore, and then you get like the the protagonist of the uh, of the past games with you for that, and that was DLC for for Apocalypse, which was a really really cool moment. But it's like, fuck, I, I wish this was just integrated into the yeah. game instead of DLC. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I guess maybe it's been going on a while then, but does that mean I have to feel better about it? Like, just get yeah. over it, old man. Like, <laughs> Well, no, I'm not, not saying to feel better about no. it. If anything, it's just a way of saying that, yeah, Atlas has been kind of terrible about this for almost a decade at this point. <laughs> no, the only, they, they, they only continue to do it because people buy into it and that you know people decide what they want to do with their money and what they support and if they want to support this then who who, who are we to say you know don't do it it's just like it's going to happen because people want it to happen for the most part it sucks <laughs> in my opinion but that's just that's just reality that's just that's just the reality of video games at this point <laughs> unfortunately so womp, womp, womp. So, Jess, as we're kind of wrapping up our discussion on Soul Hackers 2, uh, Adam and James have, or sorry, Adam and Josh have kind of talked about their main impressions. And you talked about your your thoughts on the characters in the Soul Matrix and how the story comes together. Did you have any like other final thoughts about the game, about your time with it, or recommending it to other people? Hmm. I mean, I feel like I gave it, like I gave it, um, I guess Even I if he gave it a lower to... score than I did. <laughs> I, know, I did. Like when I look at other people's reviews, I think it's just because people felt like um, they didn't want to give it any lower than a seven because it's like we wanted this game, we wanted it to come back, and we wanted it to be better than it was. But like we still, you know, like I guess lots of people hope for it to be better. I still think I don't regret playing it. Like I enjoyed it still. So I was like, I want people to know that like don't worry, just because people gave it a seven, it's still a good game. It's yeah. a it's not, a bad it's not game. A it's just... we're not pressing the panic button here i but saw someone just, phrase it, it more you technically eloquent. gave it uh you technically like specifically gave it a three out of five right which yeah, on, i know like on metacritic it shows up as a six out of ten which you know technically the same but does it feel worse um i gave it a seven so it's kind of like a good game with some issues i really wish the dungeons were better personally um but uh yeah, I think everyone I've seen who's played it, like I chatted with Izzy at RPG Fan also, who he also gave it a seven, basically. So we're kind of on the same wavelength. Um, kind of have similar takeaways in that, like, you know, there are good elements sprinkled throughout. Like Josh said, it has, you know, that feeling of kind of like the PS2 era in certain ways. Um, but there are some just kind of things that could have been better and aren't. Yeah, but, I, but you know, I... Honestly, I want I want Atlas continue experimenting. You know, I'd rather mm-hmm. I'd rather have like these kind of curveballs out of nowhere than always like relying on like the seven to eight year like you know wait for like a new SMT or new persona. Like I want I want Atlas to do things like completely new things. Like I would want them to do things that are not even completely like associated with Megaten. 
It was like not even associated with like, well, you know, we do we are in due for a new Etrian Odyssey, but um just like do something completely like, you know, does like maybe revisit like, you know, something like revisiting something like Soul Hackers, maybe revisit like, you know, trauma, the trauma series, you know, that'd be cool. But like or like make something completely new. I know they're still working on that Project Refantasy. I really I was about to say, where is Project Refantasy yeah, anyway? Yeah, and that's that's promising, but I want to see something like well it's been a long time now. Show us something. Where where are you at with that game? Yeah, but my, my conclusion to the uh basically my review, which I hope has come through in this podcast, is that like this game is a little bit experimental in the way it changes things up. I'm kind of glad it exists. I, I'm kind of glad it had a vision that they sort of focused on. I, I wish it came together a little bit better, but I am I definitely appreciate that Atlas did put something like this out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at too. It, like, sure, sure, why not? You know what? While, while you're at it, I I know that we were like thinking about this. Like, so with the release of Soul Hackers too. We don't really know of any new future Atlas projects now. Like we, we know the, the Persona ports are coming, but that's it. We don't know anything else. Yeah. So Atlas has been doing their 25th anniversary Persona like anniversary kind of celebration, of which they recently announced all those ports for three, four, and five. Um, according to their you know their website, the last announcement for the Persona 25th anniversary is supposed to be autumn. So. Now, assuming that they're saving the best for last, which I think is a fair assumption, it's possible they'll announce a Persona 6 in a month or two. Who knows? It's Persona um, 2 Dancing. Don't lie. Persona 2 Dancing. Yeah. How about d- Digital Devil Saga Dancing All Night? Okay. All right. I'll take it. But yeah, I, I guess, you know, like I guess Project Fleet Fantasy would be like the quote unquote only one then that we know that's yeah. new and you know, like somewhere in the future before video games die. Uh, you know. <laughs> but. Yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see what happens. I think in the meantime, while we're waiting for like bigger releases, I think they're going to continue to like kind of re-release uh, older t- titles, like you know how they, what they did for Nocturne. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll see modern re-releases of. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna feel like kind of a way behind the time schedule. Like Persona Five is coming to PC in October, and I'm planning to play it. So I'll be like, "Hey, guys, you never I played finally, it. Yeah, I finally yeah. played Persona Five. <laughs> you get to play the Persona Three. That's what I want. There you go. Uh, Have you never played Persona Three? No, because I didn't have a PS2 when I was nice. that young. <laughs> All right, so we'll uh, I love the PS2 version though. You're playing the PSP version technically. Oh, PSP yeah, version is it's, it's not the ideal. Like I know a lot of people wanted like bring the best elements of the PS2 and the PSP versions together. Much work. The they PSP went version. Yeah, that, that's that'd be a lot of work. <laughs> so I want to hear from you just like would you get around to playing the, the new Persona 3 re-release like what are your thoughts on it because like you know that's the, definitely not going to have like the same like evolutions that the, that went through Persona 4 and Persona 5 there's like gameplay systems and how they refine that you know modern Persona games like you're kind of almost starting at like, like like the prototype version of what it became right so mm-hmm. I, I'm interested in hearing like yeah. you know your thoughts on it when that uh, releases and all yeah, actually, like I have not played Persona three, and I've and I've played Persona four and five, but like, um, but yeah, like I remember watching the movies for it and stuff, or like nice. seeing things about it. Uh-huh. So I'm like, well, now it's time to play the game whenever it comes to Switch or PC or whatever, wherever it's coming. I forget <laughs> everything basically. Yeah. Yep. So obviously, oh, and also, uh, go... they should have Devil Survivor next. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm interested Devil to see like what other what other subseries <laughs> they bring back and put on PC or put on uh, modern consoles. So go ahead and go to Digital Trends slash Gaming to read Jess's review of Soul Hackers Two, and then obviously go to RPGSite.net and read Adam's review of Soul Hackers Two, um, and then share this podcast and comment on if you'd like. And uh, I do plan on playing it. We'll basically also be discussing this game as we get to the end of the year and see where it lands in our end of the year podcast. And uh, Jess, were you going to hang around to talk about some of the other games that we have on our list here today, or were you going to be heading off? Um, I think I'm going to be headed off just because I haven't really been playing much of the, anything else besides um, Soul Hackers 2, and then I'm still catching up on Xenoblade 3. <laughs> uh, I am with you completely on Xenoblade 3. Uh, I'm still on Chapter 5 in the giant map there, so that's that's why we haven't followed up on Xenoblade 3 on this podcast uh, since it came out. But uh, it was good to have you, and good to have uh, an extra... You know, an extra perspective on Soul Hackers 2 to go along with Adam and Josh's. So thanks for being on. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Bye, Jess. Later, Jess. We do have one other game that's uh, in the front section of our podcast here. And Josh touched on it very briefly at the start, is that uh, both James and I started Xenoblade 3 right when it launched. Uh, James has been able to finish. I have not. Uh, But James has basically moved right on into the expansion content for xenoblade chronicles 2 that is torna the golden country now i believe uh josh adam and i have all played this but for me it's been a while and my memory is a little bit foggy uh so i'm interested in kind of revisiting this oh have you played it too chow i played it too but i never beat the main game but i kind of went through the the torna better. why can't you just be normal Hey, come on! If your main game is hey, not hey, hey, I remember at the time that Nintendo even marketed it as, oh, you can play this before Xenoblade they did, 2. They did do that, didn't they? I remember that. Anyways, I want to make sure I hand it off to the right person. So, James has been playing through Torna the Golden Country, uh, and I know that, I believe this is like the last piece of Xenoblade content James had yet to get to. I'm not 100% sure on that. So, just James, uh, what, what made you decide to go into Torna the Golden Country, uh, and what are your thoughts on it? So I was kind of conflicted on whether or not to play Torna back when it came out, because I remember at the time that uh, talking with Josh, he was conflicted about parts of it, even though he bought. I'm not I'm not going to speak for him. There was just some things that was said about what Torna did that sounded like a bit of a missed opportunity. And I wasn't super interested in playing at the time because I think there was other games were coming out. I forget what specifically was hitting at the time and uh so yeah i finally decided to get around to it because um i was actually planning on trying to play this before xenoblade 3 because there was like a reprint of torna that a few um smaller online retailers like uh, video games plus and uh i forget the name of the other one but they were popping up on like mario 64's uh time um like tweets every now and then where it's like oh yeah there's a uh, reprint you can you can back order this and so it finally arrived uh about like two days before i finished xenoblade 3 and it's like well i i guess i'll play through this because Tornus you're already in the xenoblade shorter, mood yeah. and it's supposed to be shorter it's like mm-hmm. 20-ish hours something like that so i was like oh that that sounds good especially after how long xenoblade 3 was it's like it'll be nice to play an rpg i can finish in a couple of days instead of oh yeah you're gonna know like this for a week and still not be done i think there was only like one issue where the game was misleading i think it told you it's like you don't need to do the side quest to to proceed with the main story but you do 
Yeah, it's like, so I've been spoiled on that because that's, of course, because that's like the one thing everyone talks about with Torna because like, even if people enjoy it, like, and I understand why now, because like less than like two or three hours into the game, you get your first side quest and and the game very explicitly tells you, you do not need to do these to continue with the main story. And that is the game lying directly to your (laughs) face. (laughs) So... I actually, oh, forgot that. I actually forgot that it tells you that they're optional. Me too. You, you just reminded me right now that they, t- they tell you that it's optional. I'm like, wow, that's, that's fucked that up. That is yeah. not true. Come on, what the hell? Can't you just let me skip the side yeah, quest for yeah, one? Well, that, that's model that's soft at its finest right there. Lying to you about gameplay systems and the things. Mm. And so, I, okay, so overall I've been joining Torna. Uh, the new um, Titan, obviously Torna is really nice. It's a... Uh, it's been really funny playing this after Zenblade 3 because I get to a section on the Torn and Titan and it's like, here's the Donna Desert. It's like, wait a second, how the fuck did this show up in Zenblade 3 then? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, hold on now. But um, so first things first, I think I actually kind of prefer this battle system to Xenoblade 3 because mm-hmm. I already like Xenoblade 2 yeah. battle system, but I really like the additional like kind of... um. What's the best way of putting it? The additional little wrinkle of ha- having the uh, vanguard and rear guard stances and switching out with your uh, blades. Mm-hmm. It's uh, really interesting and it, and it kind of adds a nice little flow to the battle system, which Xenoblade 2 already. Ha- I, I feel like regardless of how you feel about Xenoblade 2, it's kind of anyone that's played it can kind of agree that the battle system has a really nice flow to it. I, th- I think the only wrinkle I had to that is like the like you get the most out of Xenoblade 2's battle system, like the last like. 15% of the game. Like, I think yeah. it only comes together at the very end, which is a shame. Like, yeah, I, I thought that it was like very incomplete. Well, I remember Xenoblade 2 because it's sorry. I just remember in Xenoblade 2, like, when you first get the uh, like the, the elemental orb mechanic, like, it doesn't really work or make sense when you can only hit like one or two. It's not until you can like cover the elemental spread that it really starts to click, which is like Josh said, like the last at least the last fourth of the game. Yeah. And obviously, that's less of an issue with uh, Torna because right. very early on, you get a full party, and each of them like uh, will kind of um, give you the elements you need to deal with the orbs and whatnot. Um, obviously, not a very long ga- uh, game. I am uh, I'm pretty sure I'm already like two thirds of the way through the game, if not a little bit more. Uh, before heading into it, I thought, oh, well, the side quest stuff won't annoy me because I've heard that pe- I've heard people say that Torna's side quests are good. And I was thinking, oh, so like Xenoblade Cross uh, side quests? Oh, no, no. They're, they're not good. They're not good. Sweet summer they're- child. <laughs> I-, I don't know who thinks that the Torna side quests are good, but they are wrong and they should feel bad. I don't I remember don't the side quest. I remember I remember the side quest being mundane, not Xenoblade Chronicles one bad, but it's like it's still kind of mundane. And then, yeah. uh, and, then and then it just being like, no, you literally cannot progress through the main story until you do them. Like, yeah, cool. it's not good <laughs> side quests until free. It's Let's not like well, no, the cross side quests are good, and I've gotten into arguments with yeah, this yeah, the, the, yeah, the cross side quests are fun, and like because they they end up in like such weird places most of the time. It's like okay, I didn't expect that to happen. And they actually have like real consequences too for a good chunk of them. Like 
optional optional decisions that like have real consequences in that game my one of my like i think one of the first things that really kind of clued me off to how like cross was going to be a different sort of xenoblade was like walking around new la seeing a like a speech bubble of two people talking it's like now remember if you need to disable something you need to cut this color wire and then like in a later side quest it's like just that one meme of the dude pointing at the tv being like i remember this yeah, I, I love that's like that that little like checklist of like you this won't make sense to you right away. You'll thank me later. It's just like a bunch of like words and phrases like spread out like like almost like a checklist. And you're like, I have no idea what the fuck this person's saying. Then when you finally get to it, it's like, oh my god, what did that person say? <laughs> so yeah, that's that's fun. But yeah, I mean, Torna is such a like it. It is such a it is. I love the vibe of Torna. Like the 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 jazz theme of the OST is so good in it. Uh this might be a hot take, but I think Torna looks significantly better than Xenoblade 3, like visually. I, I can see that. Yeah, the, the yeah. visual. Ability, I totally it's, agree with you on that. Yeah. It, it's it's very like you know it's cleaner for sure, and like not much aliasing. <laughs> if there's one thing Xenoblade 3 loves, it's uh, well, no, not engine. even not even just about the aliasing. I mean, like just the overall detail. It's like mm. I kind of like understood what people meant when they said, "Oh, I think that Xenoblade 3's like environments are a bit boring." Uh, especially going back to like Xenoblade 2 locations, it's like, yeah, yeah, I can kind of see why some people would feel that way. And I can't, yeah. I don't even necessarily disagree. And uh, it's funny it's- because going back to tw- like going into Torna and like kind of reacclimating myself to Xenoblade 2 and some of some of what it's what it did, it really is kind of reminding me where it really is just a few key things that really piss me off about Xenoblade 2 that kind of hold me back from like, from it being one of like, maybe my favorite in the series. Mm-hmm. Like if, if four crystals weren't a thing in the main game, if the fucking gotcha wasn't a thing, in the main game, if the mercy system that people data mine and found out is in the game, it just doesn't fucking work. <laughs> Actually worked. <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. I'd feel better about it. If field skills weren't a thing, Maybe I'd feel better affinity about charts. it. Affinity charts. I don't like affinity charts. Yeah, affinity charts. It's like there's so much about Xenoblade 2 that's great. And then you like look at it, then you like there's like every like there's like so many small things that add up and it's like, man, this is annoying. This is annoying. This is annoying. It's like it's such a shame because it's like I look at the environments and it's like, you know what? Gormont's really fucking cool. Like I really like the conceit of the cloud scene having all of these different titans. The battle system's really fun. Now pacing for how it like get and like it's expanded upon in the main game's kind of whack. And, and obviously Torna fixes that quite a bit, but it's like just looking back on it, it's it's really interesting coming from Xenoblade 3 back to Xenoblade 2 in a sense and being like, you know what? Maybe I was a bit harsh on you Xenoblade 2. And then also thinking, well, I mean, actually, is it no. very harsh? I mean, you gave it a nine back in the day. Well, Josh did. I, I did. That's but I, I, I'm going to give Josh his due here in that he pretty much said all of this in his Xenoblade 3 review in terms of environments are kind of a, a weak spot. It doesn't have as nearly as many annoying things that like previous games have had, which is one reason why he liked 3. Like We just listed off for 2. So, you know, I'm giving Josh his due here. He has basically yeah. touched on all of this. Yeah. So. so I wasn't... I well, I was at RPG site, but I didn't review Xenoblade for RPG Xenoblade 2 for RPG site back in the day. But looking back at the review I did write, uh, I gave it an eight out of ten. And I think I kind of agree with that now for Xenoblade 2. It's like just man, it's a shame because it could have easily been a nine or like even 
possibly a 10 if just some things were changed. I, I, I gave, I remember giving Xenoblade 2 a 9. I still don't regret that. I think it's a really, really strong game, but I think, I think it's a lot of it is backloaded. Like it, it has a really, really, really slow, like half, first half of the game, but it, when it really comes together, it really comes together. Yeah. Um, I remember I mean, uh, I th- Xenoblade 2, I think, has nine chapters or something. It has more I'm chapters surpri- than three. I'm surprised that you gave Torna a lower score, I think. It's like Torna's uh, superior in every way. It's like I, th- I think no I think Torna, like you know, Torna for me at the time was like I I they made really smart uh, improvements to it and what whatnot. But I re- I was really uh, off put by like hey the community system is, doesn't really come together in a great way. Um, and it, it, it like and the things about it like the things that it touches on like there was like so much potential of what it could have done to like expand Xenoblade two. In turn, like I'm trying to remember like what I wrote in the review at this point. But it's just like there's like certain things about it's like there's a lot of like lost but missed opportunities with, with the with the time frame that it was working with for it. But like yeah, you can you can crucify me if you want for giving it a, like a, a one lower score than two because arbitrary. I think it's numbers. fair people, just on the side people, testing alone. To yeah, people people get hung up with arbitrary numbers. It's just I know, you know, but I'm just saying, you know, in, in general, I just feel like this is the superior game, but they didn't want to like one up. Like the I know, I know DLC, Ch- right? Chow, Chow. He, he's not disagreeing with you. A lot of people share that opinion, yeah. but it's like it, no, at I'm the end of the day, say... it's Josh's opinion. No, but I'm just trying to say, like, it's because it's a DLC. They don't want to one up the main game, right? What happened? Yeah. They one up the main game. It's like, and it's a DLC. That I'm, uh, I'm fucking Gabumon on the cross right now. That picture of Gabumon on the cross. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, that's 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 my take. Anyways. Just saying, it's like they don't want to one up the deal, having the DLC to one up. I the get package. it, Chow. You're saying I'm wrong. You're right. Fuck me. And but <laughs> 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 anyways, I've been enjoying Torna. Uh, I, I'm definitely gonna finish it. If not today, probably tomorrow. Well, definitely tomorrow. Um. So yeah. Uh, and, and then you'll be caught up on all Xenoblade everything, right? You'll yeah. play Cross One, Two, Three, and have you played a uh, the Definitive Edition? DLC, whatever it's called. I actually have that- not. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to now because it's like the whole thing was, oh, it's supposed to connect to like what's eventually going to be Xenoblade 3. And like I've read about the plot synopsis for Future Connect. And it's like, I don't think you gain anything. I really like what Future Connected does with Melia. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a brief thing. I feel it's like it's something that should have been in the game originally, but yeah, but it's more, it's more for like like people who like want to see like you know get a, be- a more conclusive ending to like Melia's arc more so than like like don't use it as a way to like uh, better understand how it connects the three because it, it it's not really that people that beat Freeze it's a waste of time now is that what what general consensus of that DLC now. If, if the only thing you care about is canon, then yes. Yeah, it does that, that. That's and that's like not really. That's not in the spirit of it, right? To be honest, like yeah. just play it for what it is. If you if you want to play it, then play it for what it is, not for like what it it's should. Wor- like, it's worth it for the no pawn rangers. Oh no, <laughs> not the no pawns. <laughs> um. Yeah, but it really it really makes me curious to see what they do with the the Torna equivalent for Xenoblade Three. What that story DLC will look like. You know, I'm there's a lot of things you can improve upon with Three and. And I'm sure if Chow would be like, I prefer it way more than three. How can you give Xenoblade three a ten when Xenoblade three Torna was so much better? You know. Yeah, but the thing uh, is, I already like free though. It's like <laughs> I don't think I think this is like I don't know. I think free has the most accessible battle system out of the free game so far. Even though it's not, you know, it's not unique. I think it's the most accessible one so far. I, I think it makes it, it makes me really curious what 
tweaks to the battle system they're gonna do with the torn equivalent of uh three and how they're like yeah I, I think we already have like a maybe a somewhat good idea of what they're gonna go with of our characters the playable cast maybe for people who played three but I'm more curious to see like what gameplay mechanic changes are they gonna make? Are they gonna keep like the job system in it? Are they gonna you know? I'll I'll say this. I remember one of the reasons I did not want to play Torna at the time was I had these expectations for where it's like I feel like certain things could have been explained in Xenoblade 2's plot a bit better. I'm not gonna have any ex um I'm not gonna have any expectations for that for Xenoblade three even though and. I don't want to talk too much about my final thoughts about Xenoblade 3, but I will say that I still very much enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But good lord, the game peaks at the beginning of chapter six. And then I do not think the rest of chapter six and chapter seven is particularly great. Yeah. Yeah. Basically yeah. stuck with the trails in the sky, second chapter. That reflects a lot of like what Adam and I talked about. Like Adam's like, yeah, but the main story itself is like, it's like whatever, right? You're really, you're really there for the characters, not really for the main story. The main story. Yeah. Is, yeah. I've definitely seen some people like kind of coming to a conclusion. It's definitely not a lot, everyone, but I've definitely seen people say where it's like, yeah, I, I, I like the ending, but man, there's a lot of things that the game kind of just uh, kind of falls flat with explaining in the, in the, and that, 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 that's the yeah that's the thing that like i was I, i'm worried about like with the how monolith soft is structuring their games now of, like having this story dlc that comes out later of like like it, it there's no, there's a real danger with the with the xenoblade 3 story dlc it's like like it filling in holes that like probably should have been like filled in in the main game itself yeah so this is how curious Austin, would they actually like go back and patch in the game to add some more events to the main game, like kind of well, like how Massey 15 did, you know? Maybe not in that way, but there's definitely a possibility that the heroes that they add to the game, that the quests associated with them, if they have quests, might uh, might explain some things. I, 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 I'm trying to think, like, Xenoblade 2 didn't have that stuff, like, where the, all the all the post-content stuff, aside from Torna, like, all the hero, all the blades they, they did in their blade quest, like, they weren't really, they didn't really matter that much. You had, like, the cool crossover yeah. stuff, too. Well, I'm not you know. saying it's it's a, f- yeah. a surefire thing. I'm yeah. just saying there's the possibility. I'm just thinking so. of like this like historical thing, like what they did in the past. So we'll see. We'll see. Thanks for covering uh, your experience with Xenoblade Chronicles 2 Torna. And then obviously we'll have some future discussions on 3 and Soul Hackers later in the year. And for games we've been playing, those two titles pretty much cover it for this week. So I am not 100% sure what we'll be talking about next week. So I guess we'll keep it a surprise for all of us here. Uh, hold on. Uh, speaking of which, did you went over the new Melty, Josh? I mean, is that it's not mean, an RPG? What the fuck? Yeah, but we got a lot of audience here that likes Melty Blood. <laughs> I mean, look, man, I've been having a lot of fun with the new Mel- Melty patch that came out. They did a whole revamp of the game the, this the, this past week. I th- this came out of nowhere for me. Chow's putting me on the spot, but I, I've been enjoying it a lot. We should go play Melty again, Chow. Um, okay. And then they also released Neko Arc and Mash Kiri Light as free dlc characters for it but okay chow what do you want to talk about it like this out of nowhere it's not rpg what do you want to say about me i'm just asking is the patch fixed the game now is it back um, alive um, it's it's way better than it than it was like uh, it's it's well it's uh way less about like rock paper scissors with the shield mechanic there is still some of that but not but like uh, but a lot of the shield properties like make sense now and you're not so reliant uh on it for a game plan and like it like not having like forced auto combos really like improves the flow of the game for me where I can like kind of do what I want in the game without it forcing me to an auto combo. 
and like the game just and it feels like good like just it's a very minor thing but it's showing you like the amount of da- uh like a precise damage number on the combos that you're doing in the game like really is good for like okay i could have like done that combo better or think about optimization or just thinking about like certain scenarios of like i could have like done this better uh on that end so like it, it feels good like knowing that having hard numbers to that it just feels a lot better uh to me um, okay yeah so there's our hot melty second for cow. <laughs> yeah. I just have to know. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah, it's better. It's better. I I feel way better about the game now than I did when it first like came out and state of it. So again, go ahead and we don't have a feature up for Torna. You can go ahead and read Josh's Torna review from back in the day. Go ahead and do that. Go to RPG site and read his Xenoblade 2 review. And then go and read his Xenoblade 3 review. Uh, obviously, also, we have the Soul Hackers 2 review up on RPG site. Do go ahead to go to Digital Trends slash Gaming to read Jess's review on that. Uh, a few other reviews that went up on the site this week on RPGsite.net. Uh, we had Quentin had a chance to finally put up their Digimon Survive review. Obviously, Digimon Survive came out pretty much right around the same time as Xenoblade 3. And we've talked about it on this podcast uh, because Josh had had a chance to play through it as well. Uh, Quinton, though they weren't available to come onto the podcast, did write up a review for Digimon Survive and has put that up on the site. So go ahead and give that a read through. It sounds like they had a lot of the same criticisms for the game that Josh has voiced on the podcast. I don't know exactly how aligned they are, but you can go ahead and see Quinton's thought up on the site. And then we do also have a review for an indie game that originally came out earlier in the year. And this is RPG Time, The Legend of Right. It came out, I think, in March for Xbox and Windows. Then it came out just a couple of days ago for Switch and PS4. And then it's going to come out on Steam in September. So this is an indie game. It's an adventure game framed as an aspiring developer creating an RPG. So kind of a genre bend there. Uh, it looks like it's a more of a childish game. It has like a fun, like handcrafted aesthetic. Uh, Paige Chamberlain put up a review for RPG Time, The Legend of Right, up on the site. So if that's a game that you've been looking forward to, because it's kind of been, I think it was originally announced like at one of the last E3s we had in like 2019 as like an Xbox indie initiative. So it's finally available on multiple platforms. Uh, Paige, I believe, played it on Switch. Yes, on Switch. So go ahead and give that a review if that has one, been one that you've been keeping your eye out on. Yeah, the, the, like the, the, the aesthetic of it is really alluring and appealing. I kind of want to... If I have time, I'd like to give the, the Steam uh, version a shot uh, as well. Yeah, it's... It's like one of those like weird staggered releases. Like, is this out? Is this actually out? Is this actually out in the platform that I want to play it on? So that's been really uh, difficult to like uh, monitor over this game. And, mm-hmm. and also, like, I think the developer's name is uh, Deskworks, I believe. Um, and um, the, they announced that the, they announced their next project. Um, it's their next project is for iOS and Android to be revealed at TGS. So, you know, that's how it goes. Yeah, so it's an adventure game built in the style of, of a, like a child making their first RPG, quote unquote. So lots of like notebooks and like stuff that they have like for craft supplies around the room and things like that. So go ahead and give that a, a read through if you are interested in that. Well, do you think the premise of their next game, since the iOS and Android, it's like it's going to be like the, the a child making their first mobile gotcha game? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> I'll put it that way. <laughs> Uh, as for like main news topics this week, there aren't a lot. This should be a little bit lighter. We have a few sales updates, a few release dates, and a few smaller announcements. Uh, we'll go through these. Uh, shouldn't take too, too long to go through them. One of the games that we talked about on an earlier uh, edition of the podcast back in January is that Acquire announced a new dungeon crawler called 
Labyrinth of Zangetsu. The main draw of this is that it has a very unique, almost monochromatic art style. Uh, it's releasing in September in Japan, and we recently got an announcement from the publisher P-Cube that will, it will also launch in the West soon for PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, and PC. We don't know exactly what soon means. Uh, it could be shortly after the September Japanese launch. It does list uh, as winter 2023 on some real retailers. Uh, I'm going to hand this off to, I think, Adam, because this is a uh, first-person dungeon crawler. Uh, I oh. think acquire... Oh, I guess James as well. I'm sorry, James. You... Okay, I'll hand it off to James. James, are you excited for uh, Labyrinth of Zangetsu? Uh, I honestly don't know what to expect. The art style looks really cool. It's a new dungeon crawler. We It feels like we don't get too many of those these days. It, unfortunately, unlike uh, when the 3DS was a viable uh, console, uh, there just doesn't seem to be as many DRPGs coming out recently. Uh, hopefully it's good. I, I, I really do hope it's good. It seems interesting enough. There's a potential here, but it's like, um, who knows? Uh, this has actually been in development for a bit longer than uh, you uh, made it out to be. It wasn't announced this January. It was announced January 2021. Oh, I didn't even read the year on that. I just saw oh, January 7th. That's when it was announced. All right. So it was announced a year and two thirds ago. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you feel, Adam? Do you think this is going to be good? The thing is, it's being developed by, is it Acquire or is it someone else? Uh, the developer is Kairu oh, Pandu. Kairu Pandu. So yeah, the thing is, is like there's not really a pedigree to go off of here. So like I like dungeon crawlers. I mentioned that earlier this podcast, but it's so I'm I'm in I'm intrigued, but it's just kind of like I don't know what to expect because there is no pedigree. Do we know anything about like who's working at Kairu Pandu? I like, have no idea. Like Jeez. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking yeah, at the initial awesome. announcement from January, and usually if they've got, like, if they're able to get the talents of an artist or a designer from another studio, like, if they have, like, that pedigree that I'm looking for, almost always it's shouted in or highlighted in the press release, and they didn't really do that here. So, uh, it okay, could be... Okay, here, here is... I, I found a website for Kairu Pandu, and I'm trying to see if there's anything else they've worked on. Projects. Uh, oh, no. Uh -huh. uh -oh. oh, I like this. Uh, they have only they haven't really released anything yet. They did a I'm not sure if they just did the development or if they did like the localization or something for Tekken Second Run Returns on the Nintendo eShop, and that is like the only console game they've released. Let's fucking go. So who so knows? So we will associate Kairu Pandu, whoever they are. We will learn about them. Uh, this will be basically their uh, their step into the ring with Labyrinth of Zangetsu. I think Adam and James will appreciate more people making dungeon crawlers because who knows when we'll see a train Odyssey again, if ever. Hey, the other big uh, big developers at the RPG space aren't making good dungeon crawlers, so you know. Well, mm, no, apparently. no. I mean, I don't have to be excited for it because I've already played it. But uh, dungeon RPG heads, you have uh, you have one solemn duty next year. <laughs> by Labyrinth of Galleria. <laughs> yeah, so Labyrinth of Zangetsu, it'll be releasing next month in Japan, hopefully soon uh, for the West. We did get an announcement trailer for the, uh, it's basically an announcement trailer for the Western release um, and a few new screenshots, it just displaying the mostly monochromatic art style and the uh, some of the character designs and everything like that. So we'll keep an eye out on this. Winter 2023, so likely not this year, it'll likely be a January, February release in the West. But good to know that it is coming over and not too long after the Japanese release, even after the long uh, 
protracted development cycle. We do have an RPG announcement that is actually being published by Square Enix, and this is a narrative-focused fairy tale RPG called Little Goody Two Shoes. I've never heard of this. I don't know anything about this. It's another developer that I'm not familiar with, Astral Shift. Josh, when you covered this announcement for Little Goody Two Shoes, like, what is this? Uh, I saw that the Square Enix uh, social media was getting taken over by something that no one knew about. I'm like, okay, what is this? Um, it was like they, they had like your typical like social media campaign to like get, let everyone know what the hell this was. So like they got into character of like the protagonist of Little Goody Two Shoes, which is kind of like a it exudes the vibe of like uh, the Big Bad Wolf, the Little Red Riding Hood uh, type deal. Uh, it's uh, it's it's they describe it as a mysterious new fairy tale anime adventure with a dark twist. So the main character's name is Elise, I believe, and she looks like the you know Little Red Riding Hood, supposed to exude that vibe. And it's like it's a, it's supposed to be like a horror RPG, uh, like a mystery horror RPG. And it's um and the the developers Astral Shift, they're they're a Portugal based studio, and uh they're a co developer on like a remaster of an RPG, uh like uh maker game called uh, Pocket Mirror. Uh, and then like the the remaster's name is like Goldener Trom or whatever. And um, people were saying in the comments that like Little Goody Two Shoes is supposed to be like, some sort of follow up to that game. I'm not too sure. I'm not. I don't know. I haven't really verified that. But you know what they showed uh, of it seems really really neat. It has like a nice like painted art style, kind of like roaming, like roaming around like us uh, like spaces, sort of. It kind of reminded me of, like Legend of Mana almost, and like the overhead view and like the and like the um, the character art style. It's sort of like early to mid '90s anime um, esque. Uh, they didn't really uh, showcase too much of like how the game is played. There's like some brief clips on like the Square Enix Twitter uh, that shows a little bit more about it. And um, you know, they 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 mention off gameplay elements like sustenance, reputation, suspicion, exploration, and narrative. I don't know what the fuck that means in the context of this game. All we really got was like, hey, uh, a key art, some gameplay clips on Twitter. And that you know, this the uh, the announcement. Hey, Astro Shift is going is collaborating with the Square Enix Collective Initiative, which deals with uh, uh, indie games. Uh, so you know, they they, they mentioned uh, in one of the comments that'll be released uh, sometime next year. So I think this is just uh, something to like kind of you, you look at it. It looks really distinct. I'm really curious to see uh, more about it. Pretty much the way that they decided to approach this. Josh kind of hinted at it. They had someone quote-unquote take over the twitter as if they were like an influencer and it's it's kind of cute kind of cringy i guess it depends on how what you're how good what side of the bed you woke up on uh and it just it feels like a kickstarter pitch almost where they're like yeah it will include suspicion and exploration and narrative like oh i love exploration and narrative in my rpg rpg games but uh no no announcement of release window platform just a few tiny clips uh on twitter of some gameplay it does have a really nice art style so we'll just kind of keep an eye on it little goody two shoes and uh, again it kind of goes back into the mantra that we've repeated a few times on this podcast where square enix is really really stepping up as a publisher for all sorts of developers of all sorts of sizes so uh astral chef seems like just another uh small fish that was able to be picked up by the marketing push of square enix and get uh, get noticed like like on sites like this and we'll keep an eye out for it if it does end up showing up next year but i won't be surprised if it's a long ways out before we see this it seems like this is very very early at least in my opinion uh, yeah I, I like it like it's been in development for some time like from the people who uh like have been working on the game like the, like the the background artists and like the character modelers and stuff like that like they they said this has been in the 
development for quite a while, so we'll see how this all comes together. And the last bit of major news is uh, this seems to be a common theme this year when we're talking about uh, prominent Japanese uh, developers or publishers or just figureheads in general leaving longtime places of work, longtime studios that they've been a part of. This week, it is that Nippon Ichi president Sohei Nakawa is resigning from Nippon Ichi Software. He is also the uh, creator of the Disgaea series. Similar to Maguro for Atlas, uh, his a press release that accompanied his resigning resignment. Resignation, that's the word I'm looking for. Uh, he will be partnering with NIS America as a consulting, like in a consulting position. So it's kind of one of those things where he will still be involved, but he is no longer acting as company president and no longer on their like uh, on their board. So just another, I don't know how long he's been in uh, with Nippon Ichi Software. Well, he was a producer of the original Disgaea game back in yeah. 2003. So yeah, he, yeah, he's pretty much a founder of Disgaea. Yeah. So. <laughs> been there a long, long time. So yeah, it's a, it's a it's a really big departure, uh, you know. And then the, obviously the, the they have like a, someone filled in for him. I believe it's uh, Koichi Kitazumi. Uh, they'll he'll, he'll assume the pres uh, the the role of president for now until they find uh, a replacement for that position. So we'll see. I mean, yeah, that's that's it. Kind of came out of nowhere. It's just like it just kind of happened like in the in a snap. It's like oh, okay, I guess you're gone. So yeah, I mean, good luck. And uh, best of luck to whatever they decide to do next um, on that. But yeah, that's kind of a, a really, really big departure in the realm of JRPGs, especially, especially it's like in a weird like time for Disgaea, right? Like Disgaea Six felt like it didn't uh, set the world on fire. People are still pretty mixed on like its art style shift to three D, um, and the, like I would say Disgaea is like not in a great position right now uh, relative to other JRPGs. So. Yeah, I wonder where they're, where they're going to go from here. Like, I'm still, I'm still thinking of like what what other big like properties is at Nippon Ichi besides Disgaea. I know they're experimental with like releasing the like the occasional like visual novel here and there that never makes it outside of Japan, and they have that. But, it could have like, been. It could have been uh, the uh, uh, Witch for Grade Witch for Grade series, which is what I'm going to call the Labyrinth series because that's but um. Galleria did not sell well in Japan when it came out. I think the Switch version did a lot better, especially over time. So, so maybe between that and like the Western release, they'll be able to continue with that. But yeah, I know yeah, Labyrinth for Frain sold really well for them. I think they said it sold like something like over a hundred thousand. No, no, what, what? No, I remember. I think they said it was five hundred k worldwide. Okay, that's not pretty bad. good numbers. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, but yeah, I I remember you mentioning that La Galleria, you know very very struggling of its sales numbers over in japan yeah. on it so yeah i I really wonder like whoever decides to well who their next president is like where did this where they decide to take the company you know it's like i think i think nippon h is like is not in a great state uh right now uh like this guy is their like one tentpole franchise that like is guaranteed to sell based on name alone yeah but the last game didn't do too well either yeah so if the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the panic button on releasing a new Disgaea didn't, didn't set them, uh, didn't really do well for them, then what do they have? And for the record, for uh, Sohei Nakawa's resignation, he only listed some just general personal circumstances, the reason for leaving the position. Yeah. So no other real concrete details than that. So a lot of yeah. trying to read between the lines here without trying to extrapolate too much from too little information. So obviously wishing him the best. Uh, it's obviously been kind of a a few people this year uh, 
such as like Nagoshi and Meguro and all the others that are no longer with the places that they seemingly been with forever, as long as we've been, you know, adults talking about video games. So always kind of interesting to try to get used to the shift and get used to recognizing the new names. Like even right now, I'm forgetting who the new studio head of RGG is, even though I, I reminded myself a few weeks ago, because I'm just not used to it's Nagoshi, right? Oh, no, it's not. Things like that. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see who steps into the position, oh, what sort of impact they make with whatever's in the in store for the future of Disgaea, and seeing if they make a positive impact and seeing if they can kind of write the ship, if the, if the ship even needs writing. All right, the final uh, list of things here is a few release dates and a few uh, sales updates. So we'll just kind of go through these. Elden Ring, which released five years ago, it feels like, has sold 16.6 million units as of June of this year. Uh, I think the last sales update that we had was that it had sold uh, 13 million back in like their quarter one financials back in March. Dark Souls 3, I believe, was the high pull, high watermark for from software sales previous to Elden Ring, which had surpassed 10 million. So 16.6 million. I'm trying to like put that into context, but obviously really good for publisher Bond and Imco, really good for from software. I presume it's. Pers- uh, succeeded expectations though i don't know for certain what their expectations were at but has done really I well imagine <laughs> yeah I have to imagine definitely exceeded them we actually expected 20 million by now yeah <laughs> uh, who, do, who do you think we are square enix but uh <laughs> but yeah the fact yeah. that it's it's you know it's sold three million since like that quarter update in, in the game release back in february so it seems like it has at least from my limited understanding a, a good tail on it and it's seeming to continue to sell really well I mean, selling three million in a quarter after it's already sold thirteen million is pretty darn good. Yep. So, yeah, just a cool three million. Th- th- yeah, think about it. Like this, ba- just barely released at the end of February this year, and it's just like, it, it, it's like it's the type of like game that like you don't think would sell extremely well. It's like it's it's like a pretty punishing like action RPG in an open world, and it takes a lot of like time to complete. So it's like it's like opposite of like where like games have been going like going in terms of like design mm-hmm. principles i'm so sorry like, guys but souls is mainstream now it is it is and you know i a, a good chunk of this like too is helped by like the grr martin name attached to this game and it really it really paid off in in spades you know like i imagine they were like kind of like oh my god is this is this uh partnership gonna like bear fruit and now it's like yes most certainly it was the right direction to take it was, the, it was can't like, wait. whoever whoever decided we should do this. Uh, they're probably like being praised highly on the, on all their performance reviews going forward. Like I was the guy who decided we should do Elden Ring. Or we should, uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty much should, uh, partner with GRR Martin. Yeah, so. Crazy. can't wait for Armored Core Souls. Huh? I can't wait for Armored Core Souls. It's partnering with GRR Martin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. But do you think do you think Elden Ring is gonna have DLC? They have oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, I I think that Gamespom opening night live thing is like Nick like at the time it was recording like in a few days. So maybe we'll see an announcement there. So here's here's my question. It's it's okay. unquestionable that that Elden Ring is gonna sell more than twenty million. I think. Pretty unquestionable, sell more than twenty-five million by the time it's done selling. Okay, how yeah. far do we think this is going to sell? Because there is a chance this is the top-selling game this year, even over Call of Duty. I don't know. That's that's I don't tough. Think that'll happen. I don't know. It feels like I don't know. That 
I, 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 I don't know how well the, uh, lately Call of Duty has been selling to, yeah. to tell anything about it. Let's see. What are the odds of it surpassing Breath of the Wild sales? How much has the Breath of the Wild sold? I don't it's know. It's around number. $20 million, I think. I think I think it can surpass $20 million by the end of the year, easily. Yeah, 100%, especially with uh, Black Friday deals and whatnot. Because, yeah. like... The thing that's the thing that's consider is that these sales numbers are from through the end of July, not July, through the end of June. So you have all of July and at least half of August in addition. So it's definitely over like 17 million at this point. How much? And it'd be interesting that, to see know, like but. if it does get DLC, what sort of you know that shot in the arm it gets from that, depending on the. By the way, Breath of the Wild is at Breath of the Wild specifically the Switch version is at 27 million. I don't think it'll get. The, I don't think it'll get up there. <laughs> then maybe I don't know. Not, not even over time. When James was going off, when James was going off earlier, and he said sells twenty million, I was nodding my head. Twenty five. Not sure. Maybe like over the years, as it gets like those Steam catalog sales, if it gets discounted to like fifteen bucks and then ten bucks, you know, like the Dark Souls games have been. I think it could get there over time with a long enough tail, and especially if it gets like a a gold edition or whatever you call like once it has DLC I... or anything like that. I yeah. definitely think that it's a uh, tale for sales is going to be it's going to be pretty good. Yeah, Just I guess it hasn't had a holiday that, season yet. Yeah, so. it hasn't had a holiday season. And one thing you consider is that, well, it for okay. the vast majority of outlets, this is going to be game of the year for them. You look at Metacritic, you look at everything. It's going to have that like word of mouth at the end again. There's going to be like. Bandai Namco said they want to make it a multimedia franchise or like, Oh, they did say that. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we saw what happened with Witcher three where it's like, it already sold really well, but then it got like a huge boost in sales when the Netflix series came out. Elden Ring Netflix series. Elden Ring, the golden country. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Here's the, the golden question. So dark soul, the dark soul series has also released, you know, they've gotten Switch releases. Does Elden Ring eventually get a Switch release? No. Not unless there be a Switch. I think think it's way more likely we see a port of Elden Ring on the next Switch, like Switch 2, because it's like, I feel like we're we're reaching the point where it's like, we might get an announcement for a Switch 2 any day now. Like, yeah, we knew the NX was coming like over a year before the Switch was announced, but the thing is, is that that was announced so early because the wii u was a total fucking flop like i'm i haven't i have the opinion in forever yeah i'm of the opinion that there is a distinct chance that we might actually see the switch to next year and in fact i think that if you look at what sort of switch games are coming out in spring 2023 it's like hmm that's interesting why is there a lot of switch games coming out around that Meanwhile, from software's offices, you just see like 10 switches in a row lighting on fire trying to run Elden Ring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Maybe, uh, maybe, I'm overthinking. Yeah. maybe I'm overthinking things. I do feel like um, definitely not uh, an Elden Ring port for a Switch, but Switch 2, I definitely think there's a good chance at that. Boss, I think we can get Elden Ring to run on Switch, but the, but the, the, main, the main thing you have to give up is uh, it runs at 5 FPS. I don't know, man. I oh, was playing single blade free. The, a lot of the cutscenes kept freezing because my switch is very old. <laughs> Fuck, hey, if you, uh, it feels like Elden Ring kind of. I don't want to say it came and went because clearly it didn't. I don't know if it sold sixteen million, but like it was a really great game, and I kind of want to like 
before we get into like you you talked about how it's going to be in contention for game of the year pretty much everywhere including our site uh i kind of want to make sure that it's not this thing that i'm pulling from my memory from 10 months from nine months ago when it comes time to discuss that so especially since like uh, we i know josh and i i believe both played it on pc i think we all played it on pc which we held had to deal with the like the performance issues at launch i want to see if like those have been ironed out uh i know they've done a lot of like patches for like rebalancing which is interesting in a single player game mostly i, I guess I, I still think of these games as primarily single player even though they have a multiplayer component i don't know if that's just my mindset uh but i do want to kind of revisit this and see what basically remind myself what was so great about it before we get to the end of the year because it was i did leave a really strong impression yeah and then it's interesting too because after elden ring's released like there was like a good chunk of like two to three months like after it of like just avid, avid, avid Elden Ring talk daily. Of like mm-hmm. people just finding stuff out, having these moments in it. Like for a while, it felt like Elden Ring was the only video game in the world when this uh, game came mm-hmm. out for a good chunk of time. And like, and I, I've noticed this for like like a good handful of people. Like after like they were finished like with Elden Ring and like they said, okay, I got to move on to something else. Like they're for a good for a good chunk. Of it, it's like it feel like games felt empty to them. It's like. It's like man, I, I like I I go to this game, but all I can really all I can really think about is like wanting to play Elden Ring again. That's interesting. That's an interesting effect. That means the game is very good. You know, it leaves an impression like that. It'll be like me being near Automata. I guess like two months, I can't play a video game again. <laughs> I did remember seeing some people say like Elden Ring really falls off in the back half, and when I played through it, I don't remember really feeling that. So I'll be interested in like playing again. And be like, all right, is the back half worse than the front half? I didn't really get that. I, when I, played I through feel it. like it's the bosses that are very poorly balanced near the last half of the game. It's like the Godskin duo was very bad on. <laughs> For me, it was uh, Malakath Malakanth. I I don't know how I beat that guy. So I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm interested. In, like, yeah, like like you said, Brian, I might pick it up again to see like what they did for the balancing because because my my uh, what, what I came away with uh, from that game, even though I played like a really really like quote unquote bad build, I was like, this game is pretty poorly balanced for for a good chunk of builds. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, it's definitely not a game. It's like you go play however you want. It's like, oh, you're gonna like just at some point you're just like really really just making it th- well. things harder for yourself. I will admit that I was someone that could not beat a certain endgame boss without the Mimic Terror summon. And they, then they, they nerfed the Mimic Terror. Nerf, so I'm like, oh no. <laughs> yeah, they, they nerfed that. So now you have to like, uh, rely on other. Uh, I, have to, I have to actually get good now. Oh, no, I, yeah, I, I, I can't be a game now. journalist anymore, guys. I'm sorry. Pretty fucked up, to be honest. Uh, we have another sales update from earlier this year. And this is a game that I think absolutely has potentially fallen under the radar. And that is Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes. Only released back in June, late June. Uh, it has sold 1 million copies. Uh, and it did reach that milestone quicker than the original Fire Emblem Warriors, which I don't think is a surprise based on the fact that it's centered around being a companion game to Fire Emblem Three Houses. But is Josh the only one that's played Three Hopes? No, I, I didn't play this yet. Oh, you didn't play this at all? No one here, has anyone here played Three Hopes? Nope. I haven't, uh, at least. I want, I want to, but I, I haven't been able. I only played the demo. That, we had to bring back uh, Colin. To explain three hopes to us, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think Colin wants to talk about uh, three hopes. Yeah, he he's still recovering from all, doing all those guides. Yeah, it, it was a lot of work, but Luckily, you know, this is this is pretty pretty good, right? Like you know, like these uh, Muso spinoffs that are you know tied to a uh, game IP, like the Persona one, like the Fire Emblem one, um, and, and that that partnership with Nintendo, like the Legend of Zelda as well, like that partnership with Nintendo. From Omega Force has largely paid off for them. Like they continue to do really, really great work uh, with Nintendo IPs. 
you know, g- game performance aside with, like, stuff like Age of Calamity, like, they, like, it's cool that, like, Omega Force is able to, like, integrate core systems from, like, the, the IPs that they're working with and find a way to, like, put that into an action RPG context, you know, like, with, with Three Hopes, they do a really, really, like, great job, like, kind of, uh, translating like the strategy RPG mechanics into like that action gameplay and having like the overhead view be those like like old school Fire Emblem sprites uh be represented there in some way, shape, or form. Like that's really cool to see, like just from that aesthetic perspective and really pulls you into that world, like it making it feel like an authentic Fire Emblem experience, even though the gameplay is nothing but is nothing like traditional Fire Emblem. And it's just nice that Nintendo has built such a strong relationship with Koei Tecmo uh, and Koei Tecmo in general, and even Omega Force specifically, so that Koei Tecmo obviously helped out a ton on the development of the mainline Fire Emblem game. And they're able to reutilize those assets to kind of put in these, like, you know, filter out these these companion games in between the main releases just yeah. to, you know, bolster their, their release cadence. And, you know, for people that are really fans of the series, they can ex- get to experience uh, an additional storyline. Like, this is a game that I. I I almost always say that I'm interested in getting it. I don't know if I'm interested in getting into Three Hopes, but I might like watch some. I'm going to pull a chow and watch some YouTube footage uh, and just kind of <laughs> see like I'm interested in what this game does with the story because I, I haven't really followed through on what this game does and what the reception really was. Mm-hmm. So I want to at least come from uh, that level of understanding of what this game was and what it's, you know, how if it left any lasting impact because we don't really know. I feel like every year people hypothesize this is when we're going to see the Fire Emblem 4 remake. That's their big game this year and it just it still never comes. So it's that and Metroid Prime Trilogy for the Switch uh, seem to be the persistent rumors about what Nintendo we, has in store for the big holiday release. Do we know what Omega Force is working on right now? I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Nope. All right. DGS is soon, I guess. Oh uh, yeah, that's true. So maybe we'll see. We'll see. I, I, it's so weird. I always think of like teachers like feel feels so far off, and it's like no, it's like less than a month away. Yep. That's it for uh, sales updates. So now just some release dates. We have a turn-based pixel RPG, Jack Move, with this, uh, which is a indie game with a cyberpunk aesthetic. Will be releasing on PlayStation Four, Xbox One, and Switch on September 20th and coming to PC on September 8th. I guess I stated that backwards. So PC, September 8th, and then coming on all last-gen consoles on September 20th. Uh, got a new trailer up on this. Wait, is this a new trailer? Yeah, this a is a release date trailer. So we got a new two-minute trailer for the release date announcement up on the site with a kind of an anime-esque aesthetic to it and then a little, a few little gameplay snippets as well. Looks really fun and charming, and our early September is not too crowded. It's got the Made in Abyss, I believe, is also uh, early in that month. Uh, but this looks like a fun, a fun little indie game with a with a lot of heart behind it, a cool aesthetic. And it seems like Cyberpunk has really come into vogue. And even though the big Cyberpunk game might have disappointed, I feel like a few other games in that space have also kind of been able to pick up the slack a little bit. So I think this game yeah, looks really they, interesting. They released a prologue demo recently, like I think around May, and like the the, the reviews on that on Steam have been fairly positive. So pe- people really seem to really dig like the first impression that it gave off with its prologue demo. Yeah, let's see if I can find the demo on Steam. I uh, linked it in the news article. Did it's there? Yeah. Ah. It, uh... Yep. Very positive with uh, 500 plus reviews. Looks like it's pretty promising. Yeah, the prologue demo is called Icebreaker, which is fitting. Uh, also an early September release for a cyberpunk indie game. We've got Anno Mutationum. I remember talking about this game when it came out and I couldn't learn how to pronounce it. Mutation EM. Mutation M. 
Uh, Josh originally covered this for us. Uh, he had a chance to talk about it back on the podcast back in March when it originally released. But it will be also releasing for Nintendo Switch on September 1st. Yeah, this is like a, a game that like it's kind of for, for me at the time, I kind of got bored with it as I played. I think I think uh, the, the world itself is interesting, but like a lot of its mechanics felt too kind of stale for me. Uh, and like the, the main story itself is like I, I was really digging it. Like I know it's gotten through a lot of patches uh, through it too much to really like keep up with. And I know like they added like I don't know if they added like a, a new ending or some sort of tweak to the ending or whatever, but like i guess i guess it speaks to like hey this released in a really rough state um when it first came out and then what i don't know how, how people feel about it now after it's gotten through a lot of patches and maybe content updates so i haven't really been keeping up with this game but you know it's a to fine fit for the switch for people who want uh who've been looking forward to it there i just uh for me i just came away from being like eh, it's okay but it doesn't really do much for me it also does have a uh, free demo available on the eShop. Mm. Um, another September release. Uh, this is a text-based RPG called Road Warden. Uh, it looks like you also covered this news bit uh, as well, Josh. This is cool. Uh, this is like an illustrated text-based RPG that's coming out uh, September 8th for PC. Um, there's a demo out on Steam as well. Um, this is like your classic text-based choose-your-own-adventure RPG that you rarely get to see in modern releases these days where like you just have a story scenario, they give you options. And you interact with everything through text in it. They they sort of have like panels on the left that like kind of give you a visual to like what environment you're in, um, and then like some RPG systems, obviously with like your the, your uh, vitality and other stats displayed on the right. You have like a journal, and you undertake side quests. The main uh, the main story is like you're exploring this uh, uh, peninsula, like uh, like this, this uncharted peninsula for for a guild for a merchant guild and. Um, and like these road wardens are sort of like the middlemen in this like uh, high fantasy medieval uh, era, where like they kind of deliver letters to like other towns, like you know burn corpses that like you know have been kind of left out on the road, uh, take care of like any like uh, hostile creatures and bandits and so forth. So I actually had a friend play the demo. He says this is really cool. I hope they like uh, maintain the quality of the demo into the full game. I it's a demo I wanted to check out, but I haven't had the time to do so. But this is actually one of those things that came out of nowhere that I'm like, this looks really cool. And I want to I want to try it out. The early September does seem like I'm interested to see like what those podcast episodes will look like, mainly because like late September, we've got like Trails from Zero, Valkyrie Elysium and some bigger titles coming out. But early September, we have a lot of these indie games that I know we've mentioned on at least one podcast like Jack Move, like No Place for Bravery. I know we've mentioned on a podcast. So Deal Field is also late September. But like those first three weeks, it's interesting to see like what ends up kind of filtering through and we feel pretty strongly about if we end up getting a chance to get some of us to look at a few of these and seeing like what ends up being worth a second look going forward. Uh, a couple other releases, the, this is not really in order, but we have a November release announced for Story of Seasons, Doraemon, Friends of the Great Kingdom. This was originally, uh, this is a Story of Seasons spinoff that was originally announced uh, back in the summer. It's coming out for Switch, PlayStation 5, and PC, releasing on November 2nd. So following up on Friends of Olive Town, oh, sorry, Pioneers of Olive Town, Wait, is that the correct one? What was the first Doraemon one? Oh, first Doraemon is just called Doraemon Story of Seasons. I yeah. That's right. Now, the, so, the, weird, the, the weird clarification on this news bit is that technically Bond and Namco Southeast Asia announced this. And while Bond and Namco games are usually day and date and released simultaneously worldwide, 
I don't think Monday Name Co. like America or Europe have said anything about release date. It's probably the same day, but for some reason they just haven't said it. Yeah, I don't know why they why they're like they staggered the marketing for for it so much uh, between these like. It's just, I think I think yeah. the Monster Rancher game is similar, where like Bandai yeah. Namco Asia announced it, but then like I don't need, I still don't know if the Western studios have technically announced their release on that. That's on Switch. It's just kind of weird. Yeah, I, I know they I know they like they literally like held back like the global announcement for like the Anime Expo panel. Uh, obviously, there's like, but as for the release date, like I don't think they've officially like yeah, like you said, uh, confirmed it for the West like on the release date, but. It's assumed because like all the others have have been like global simultaneous release dates, but we'll see. I guess I don't know. It's so weird. All I know is with this Doraemon Story Seasons Friends of the Great Kingdom thing is uh, Kite uh, put up uh, a few screenshots about its uh, early purchase and pre order bonuses, and one of them is the Sweet Seeds set. And you know what? That's a really cool name for it, Sweet Seeds. I guess also, and this is actually interesting to, for Kite specifically. This is like the first Bandai Namco game to have an Indonesian translation and text. Yes. Yeah. Because I guess Doraemon is super popular in Indonesia, and that's where Kite's from. Um, mm-hmm. So that's interesting and cool. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I'm glad that they like recognized that and went out of the way and spent resources to like, okay, let's really cater to this audience that we know is like a beloved franchise there. It's super popular in China too. When I was oh, a really? kid, that thing basically, it's more popular than Dragon Ball. Yeah, like the the, the Raymond, like the, honestly, like people like people underestimate like the strict the, the, the Raymond series. Like it's very it's popular in places that you don't think it is. Um, and it's like it's like the Raymond, like from what I understand, like I think it's like either Saturday or early, early Saturday or Sunday morning in Japan. There's always like the like the Raymond has been like as its same time slot for like many 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 years. And it's like it's like just like that consistent kid show in Japan. One thing that really bothers me is the Chinese translation for his name. His Chinese translation is weird. It, they call him Ding Dong. Wait, really? Yeah. Uh, Why? Uh, yes. Is, is it just like, like I don't weird. know. In Cantonese, they call him Ding Dong. I don't know what exactly what the heck, what the heck uh, was calling, but that's what they call him. It sounds really funny. Uh, you're wow. listening to this, and you know the etymology of like why this behaved to be why they call Doraemon Ding Dong in Cantonese. Uh, I just assumed that was like a common East Asian name. Like I had a professor once that was named Dong Ding, and you know, it just it was just his oh. name. Just like, hmm. Was his real? Was his like original name Do- Doraemon? Did you ask? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's releasing on November second. So according to the uh, Southeast Asia Bandai Namco, we'll see if that is confirmed. Confirmed uh, with the uh, official Western publisher. Uh, here's one that is for late August. Uh, Guild Wars 2 is launching on Steam on August 23rd, which coincides with the game's 10th anniversary. Uh, I guess are, it was. Are you, expecting, uh, are you expecting like a big like since you played Guild Wars uh, still? Like, do you expect like the population to like be reinvigorated with the Steam release? Honestly, like no. And I think it's going to oh. actually be a bad look because Steam shows concurrent players. The main thing oh, that okay. they've done is that. I, I, you'll have to remind me, James and Chow, how Steam Final Fantasy XIV works. But for Guild Wars 2, like existing accounts of Guild Wars 2 cannot be ported to Steam. Like they're separate. Oh. Like they, the, the player bases play together, but you, your account is either one or the other. So if you yeah. made an account 12, uh, not 12, if you made an account nine years ago, 
it's laid dormant and you want to pick it back up, you can't with the Steam version. You have to start fresh, which has pissed off a lot of people. There is no like migration process either. And one thing that's even more kind of confusing is that Guild Wars 1 trilogy has been on Steam for years and has an official way to link to Guild Wars 2 to get you some like just little cosmetic bonuses. And you you can't even do that linkage. Like Guild Wars 2 on Steam is like its own separate island. So wait a second, wait a second. So you're saying that you can, if you buy Guild Wars 2 separately, so on its own like standalone launcher, you can link Guild Wars 1 from Steam to it to get additional bonuses. But if you buy Guild Wars 2 on Steam, you cannot link Guild Wars 1 on Steam to get those same bonuses. My understanding, understanding based on the information they've released without the Steam release being official yet, is yes, what you stated is exactly correct. Guild Wars 2 on Steam cannot link existing Guild Wars 2 accounts or prior Guild Wars 1 accounts, even if those Guild Wars 1 accounts are on Steam. God, I hope that's right, because I don't want to be on the record saying that's wrong. But that's what, like, you you have to kind of go buried into their press releases to, to... pull these details out because they're not obviously like putting that at the front which honestly the the things you get for linking is really like incidental and small it just seems like a weird limitation and then people who like have an account that is dormant that want to play the game like oh i'll play it on steam but oh i can't use my existing account well never mind then uh it just seems like i don't know if it's a technical decision i don't know if it's a decision just because they don't want to have a 30 percent cut on cash shop purchases on to valve but as is this going to bring in a ton of players i i don't think so but what is the we'll new, what is the new player experience like in Guild Wars Two these days? If you know, like, is it just like easy to pick up uh, and play? It it's hard to say this because I haven't been a new player. So yeah, like, yeah. but they back in like 2014, they revamped the new player experience to coincide with the release in China, and then the Chinese client like flopped hard. So oh, wow. I don't like, but that's what we're stuck with. So the oh. new player experience is in a weird state right now. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. It's I think it it's better than it was because of the initiative that they knew that they were releasing on Steam. But I, I wish they had a bigger team that was dedicated to like I talked about how Paradox has or like um the custodian team where they all they do is patch up new uh, old con oh I say this from an outside I haven't played a paradox game in a while but my understanding is that they have a custodian team that just touches old content make sure it remains up to par not only just bug fixes but like content shifts and like making sure that it fits the current paradigm of the game and I kind of wish ArenaNet did that more strongly than they did but maybe I'll be proven wrong I mean I'm interested to see uh what its reception is my guess right now is that it'll release on steam and its reception will sit at mixed and I, I will be glad to be proven wrong but we'll see what is the what is the state of arena net like are they pl- developing anything else or it's just they're just that ha- with Guild Wars 2? that has been a giant question for all guild wars fans oh. for like the literally the last six years because <laughs> yeah. they have they have a they have apparently started and stopped tons of projects so you can find like art stations for people who are contractors at arena net that had created like concept art and storyboards for like a dune game that never was formally announced apparently they were making a sci-fi mmo that was never formally announced uh apparently like there's there's some guild wars 2 trailers that look like they came from a modal a mobile adaptation that was never actually announced you see so it's a lot of trying to read between the lines and be like what were your and then there's people that you can follow their twitter handles and they say like they worked at arena net between 2017 and 2019 didn't work on guild wars 2 then left the studio it's like then what were they working on so it's I, it's been a bad couple of years that's, for them that's bizarre yeah yeah i think the, the the expansion they had earlier in this year i think was 
as good as could be expected considering the pandemic and the release date and all that. But it is interesting to see like what where do we go from here? Uh, and hopefully a Guild Wars 2 Steam release ends up being a shot in the arm for the game itself. If that's basically where all their eggs are, that's the basket they sit in at the moment. Damn, uh, no um, for that game. And then uh, we have one final update here about a delay, and that is for Broken Roads. So Broken Roads was originally announced uh, several years ago uh, as a post-apocalyptic CRPG. It was announced back in 2019. It is no longer being published by Team 17. It is now being published by Versus Evil. Uh, Versus Evil, I know, like published a few of the the console ports for like some of the Obsidian titles before Obsidian was uh, bought by Microsoft. Um, I think uh, they've also done a lot of indie RPGs, um, but the Broken Roads has been again delayed. It is now set to release in 2023. Yeah, I mean, you know, take as time, uh, take as much time as you need. It looks, it still looks like a pretty interesting, like isometric CRPG that is very much like, described as Australian Fallout, which is definitely what it's going for. Um, still looks pretty awesome. I would lo- love to play it. It's, but you know, it's it's kind of a weird like thing of like you just barely last August they they this was the last August was like hey Team Seventeen is publishing this game and now between last August and now clearly something happened behind the scenes of like a big shakeup of like indie publishing hands. I think it's always like a weird thing like Adam and I were talking about. It. It's like it's always weird when like indie ops projects like get like sudden shifts in like publishers and like what happened there. Yeah, one thing that Versus Evil did do, which I don't think a lot of publishers do this, is that they did publish a Gamescom trailer for it, even though it's ahead of Gamescom. Uh, so basically, as soon as it was under their wing, they do make sure that they're like, yep, we're working on this and we're committed to it in a way just by releasing that trailer. Uh, and they have some uh, some press coverage from earlier previews and demos of the game uh, and showing off some gameplay for it. I don't know if this gameplay is actually new, but just the fact that they decided to say like, yes, we're delaying this. It's now under our wing, but we're committed to it. Here's a new trailer for it. It's pretty fun. I think. Yeah. There was also a, a little bit of murmur. I don't know. A couple months ago that team 17 apparently has some issues as a publisher. So. Oh but yeah. I think it's a little bit weird. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't know any details, but I know some other former developers, I believe it was Team 17. I don't remember the game. The developer decided I'm gonna actually just pull my game off of Steam rather than have it be published by Team 17. Wow. So yep, we'll see uh if that's coming out in 2023. I'm always obviously always a big fan of CRPGs in general. Uh, I did like the original Fallout games, and if this is built in the vein of being an homage to those, uh, I'm excited about this and I'll likely be looking forward to it next year. And that kind of covers us for this podcast. So again, thank you so much to uh adam and josh and of course to jess for doing an extensive dive into pre-release coverage for soul hackers 2 that obviously comes out in about a week and we'll be following up on that with other impressions as other people play through the game we do have that review up on the site for soul hackers 2 and the, including the uh the also the other reviews for digimon survive from quentin and rpg time the legend of right from page uh, we have all the news topics that we talked about up on the site as well you can find rpg site on all the social media platforms uh you're you can search for rpg site on youtube facebook twitter or instagram if you saw it with a keen eye we screwed up sweet so it in three and four on our on our social tweet for that so our mistake uh, you can also it happens. No, we all those all those tweets are handmade, and that means uh, they have mistakes from time to time. 
We do have a Discord, discord.gg slash RPG site. So go ahead and give that a look and a read and a join if you're interested in discussing uh, any of the RPGs that come out this year or in the future. And you will hear from us next time. Like I kind of said, we don't really know what the main topic will be going into uh, late August and early September. So it'll be a surprise to us as well. But thank you so much for listening. And until you hear from us then, stay safe and take care. We'll talk to you later. Later, everyone. Bye.